Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Do you want to go to rugby heaven? Let's go back to 1987 with Squidge. With Squidge. Let's go back to 87 with Squidge. Hello, good afternoon, good evening, good um, everything, literally everything in the world else. And you are welcome to the Squish Rugby World Cup retrospective, who has forgotten how to introduce a podcast. But You didn't know in the very, first very, place. I, look, look, it's a skill I'm still learning. I am thrown off because we were having a conversation I wanted to not interrupt and yet say, let's record this. Immediately before starting, I am joined as ever by Will Owen, a scrawny, ugly man who's only friend a dog. Um, yes, that's true. Uh, as as my uh, that's I believe I've got that written down on my Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, yes. If anyone goes on there uh, and wants to review me, then that's that's the standard setter. Thanks to Mister Wam Bam Am on Twitter. Though. Yeah, yeah. And I'm absolutely delighted and thrilled and honoured to be joined by the one and only commentary hero, the fifteen <laughs> writer. Uh, who writes for them? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> and much, much more beside, Mr. Jamie Lyle. How are we doing? I'm good, thanks, boys. Thank you very much for having me on. You, you could add failed vet student, um, <laughs> fellow fellow bespectacled rugby nose. There's, there's a long list of um, really unglamorous things you could add in that intro. There are dozens of us. There are dozens of us out there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's the... Vet fit, was that your long term? Was that what you were wanting to head into when the comedy got in the way, or was it very much the other way around? Oh, no, I was, I was terrible, man. I was so, so <laughs> bad. Like, I, um, I went to, I, long story short, I am from yeah. Edinburgh originally, grew up in the northeast of Scotland, Aberdeen and Burness up that way, came down to Glasgow for uni, got 10 years ago now. And yeah, as, as a kid, I wanted to work, I loved rugby, but I wanted to mm. work as, as a vet, I wanted to work with animals. Um, dream job back then would have been you know like head vet on the Kruger National Park or something on the, the outback in Australia or scuba diving in the barrier reef all, all that sort of stuff look at, looking after yeah, the yeah. Ocean sunfish and the the finding Nemo's of this world um, <laughs> but I was I can say without fear of contradiction I was the poorest and um, most heinously awful student that Glasgow Uni have ever admitted into the prestigious <laughs> You know, I walked the same halls as Jim James Herriot and all these guys, and I was getting a great H and biomolecular sciences and things like that. <laughs> H for hopeless. Like, I was, I was <laughs> so, so bad. And I, I, I think it was one of these ones where I was probably one of these kids who came, you know, big fish, small pond, came from a wee, wee place up north, wee school, thought I was quite clever, didn't have to work too hard to get the grades that I needed to. You know, I was one, one of these horrible little entitled kids who um, sort of just coasted throughout the year, made an arse of the mock exams. Then when it came to the final thing, I was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll work for a couple of weeks and I'll be all right. And I always, <laughs> well, always was, and arguably that was quite a bad thing, because if I'd, maybe if I'd failed earlier on, I might have bucked my ideas up. But um, came down to Glasgow, a couple of years of vet school, I was honking at it, I didn't enjoy it, and um, 
yes, I blundered into um, to sports journalism a, a couple of years later. So I'm still I still think of myself as a, a complete rookie, particularly in the commentary side of things, which is only really only really taken off. And it's not taken off; it's only really started. Um, it has taken off, so. man. Like. You know, we're going to give you credit, even if you don't give it to yourself. Like we're we're both like big fans of your commentary. Mm. I can tell you that for a fact. You know, no, like you're you're genuinely no, like one of the, the the big sort of rising, not just rising commentators. You know, like one of one of the big dogs, man. Like we've had this conversation before, and I'm going to suck up to you right from the very beginning. It's yeah. the thing, but you are to me the best and the kind of my favorite, certainly of the kind of commentators that come along in the time I've been watching rugby. You know, yeah. that weren't. Like of Miles Harrison and so on were established by the time I started watching. Yeah, yeah, you're not, you're not there now. Um, we're not going to, we're not going <laughs> to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, in the in the time I've been watching, you're my, you know, uh, to me the the best new voice has come along. And okay. I'm going to say that right at the beginning to make it incredibly awkward for everything. And put loads of pressure on you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's 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 no, listen, I'll um, I'll send you that fifty quid once we're on Switch. Cheers. <laughs> no, no, listen, joke, joking aside, that's, that's so lovely to hear because it is, you know, you guys know rugby better than, than probably anybody I know who isn't actually a professional player analyst coach as has been proven with all the stuff that, that you write and the content you produce which is which is awesome and I you know, will unashamedly binge it when it's pertaining to teams I'm commentating on I remember even like a couple of years ago in fact not it was last season start of the premiership first weekend uh, after lockdown channel five still had a few of the games and, and I, I got a, a late shout I think like five or six guys had COVID or something and they were like, oh God, we get somebody coming who can do this game. And it was Exeter v Leicester. And um, I just remember, I, I obviously mentioned you on air because it was your stat, but mm. the, the number of driven mull tries, the number of tries, you, you totted up every single try Exeter had scored in the previous year and X number of them had been from within 10 metres um, or something mm. like that, you know, because of the way they play, the pick and go yeah. around the corner. Uh, you know, stuff like that. So it's it's so nice to hear such um, kind words, and I very appreciate it. And the the admiration is entirely mutual. Thank you. This is an absolutely sickening start for anyone listening. For anyone who isn't one hey, of us three, this yeah, is yeah, probably I mean, it's, really it's horrible to listen lovely to. Lovely for us. Right, so we're all great. Let's move on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what a club we're in, and anyone listening isn't. <laughs> no, I just wanted to pick up on as we were saying beforehand. If we think. The three of us, on that note, have come from quite similar rugby mm. upbringings. Yeah. Of a lot of watching old games as kids, a lot of it just always being on or around, just being there, sort of almost force-fed into our diets. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, you know, when I was we, I mean, if it wasn't from my old man, I don't think I would have had such a keen interest in it. I remember he came back from, he's in the Air Force, and he came back from some sort of stint. It might have just been a, a jolly, I don't really know, but he was in South Africa for something what what the royal air force was doing in south africa i really don't know i probably don't want to know to be quite honest but he was there <laughs> for some some amount of time when i was very very young and he brought back i remember the first rugby ball i ever had was a a blue bulls um transvaal um rugby ball that he brought back this little size three thing when we used to go to the park and that was pretty much it that was me hooked <laughs> played many rugby from from then on in from like you know primary three which i guess I don't know exactly how the, the school system works down the road, but that's you know third third year above nursery, mm. really, or above kindergarten, whatever you want to call it. So I, was, I suppose I was steeped in it from a very young age, thanks to him. My granddad on my mum's side was the same. He used to go to Murrayfield, yeah. hip flask, sherry, etc. All, <laughs> all in tow, carryouts back in the day, I'm sure, when nice. such things were, were allowed. But I think like the you know the, the old VHS tapes and stuff were always always. Oh, of on course, board. we never we never had. My, my parents steadfastly refused to invest in. Um, 
satellite TV for years and years and years. So you just go to the, go to the old VHS cabinet. I suppose I'm just old enough to have had the VHS players and stuff. And the 101 best tries and the another 101 best tries VHS yeah. tapes, which some of your some of your more nosy listeners will be familiar with. And of course, McLaren and Clive Morgan and all these these giants of um, of broadcasting as well as rugby. Mm. I can still just I'm going off on many many tangents here as I often do. So apologies Please. for making this podcast as okay. quite left as it should be. But I remember when I was like I must have been like seven or eight or something. I, I just finished mini rugby training at Portobello RFC in Edinburgh. And um, the Scotland 20s were training there for, for some reason. Mm. And Roy Laidlaw and John Rutherford were doing a lot of coaching at that time for Scotland 20s. This would have been like around about 2001, 2002. And um, my dad was like, oh, son, that's Roy Laidlaw over there. And obviously, there wouldn't have been many kids that age would have heard Roy Laidlaw known who yeah. was going to do. But I was like, oh, my God, that's the guy who won a grant. Because I watched all these videotapes. Yeah. And Roy Laidlaw was astonished. Like, I remember going up to him and asking for his autograph. And he was like, how the like? How do you know? <laughs> He's like, is your dad? And I was like, no, no, I've I've seen you on the TV, Mister Laidlaw. And he was like, is your old man too cheap to get a color telly, son? Like, you know, <laughs> so yeah, it was very much um, a nod from the off. And, and actually, when I look mm. back, it's quite funny. Now, my, my parents sometimes remind me, like when I was wee, I used to sort of think about even daft things like she might be playing, or I would like. I promise I had some friends. I wasn't just like, like back in the day, but you know, I, I used to like do almost when I look back at it, they were almost like commentary big sheets, just with like felt it, yeah. just with, like who might play and all, all the rest of it, like Scotland, wow. whoever on the bottom. And I remember a few years ago I, I found one in a box up the road at home and I was like, bloody hell, like I was actually maybe maybe this was my calling all along and then um, <laughs> wandering around oh. um, Doing unspeakable things to sheep and cows in the name of medical um, well-being was not was not what I was meant to do. So, we yeah. we were discussing on a previous episode of this podcast that we used to play rugby O four on the PC and we would commentate on each yeah, other playing. We, we didn't we have, have a second controller. controller or anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the other one was yeah, commentate there. on the game. Yeah, 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 yeah. One yeah. one had a USB controller. One had to use the keyboard. And whoever the keyboard was like. <laughs> The keyboard in those days couldn't handle too many buttons being pressed at once, so you could only sprint and run in one direction. Yes. Uh, it was pain. It was do, great. So do you, do you come from, did you play much when you were younger? I miss What's, playing a lot, actually. Really, yeah. Like, yeah, I do. Like, that's the, I would what, say. What position were you, you know, what kind of player were you? Give us, give us some background. I was, a, I was an airy fairy back row who was afraid of rocks, but loved cross kicks, basically. So <laughs> I, I was such a luxury player. <laughs> um, I was I played for um, Portobello when I was when I was wee mini rugby and right, I moved yeah. north with, with my family to right. with my dad being the air force the air bases at that time were um, were up in a place called Lossiemouth and Kinloss which is in the northeast very rural and up on that part of me Murrayshire coast beautiful part of the world where we grew up I played for Murray right through to under eighteens had a couple right. of sort of north of Scotland kind of Caledonia the, the region the region of Scotland's called mm-hmm. which is basically everything north of kind of like. Over the north of the central belt, really, sort of lumped in as Caledonia, or was it? Right, right, yeah. And a few trials and stuff for that, but it was never really good wow. enough to, to make much of a splash. For what you've described is selected. you've described yourself as a very muscular Dan Parks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, probably. I mean, I, I reckon I had, a, I had a decent return off the tee, actually, back in the day. I was uh, a really? left, left peg kick. I mean, it's just basically I just wanted to take the kicks. Everyone was like, right, I wants to take it, just let him do it. But, um, <laughs> I got quite good at because we grew up in the arse end of nowhere. We had we had this mm. sort of big long L shaped garden. So if you if you judged it right, you could kind of kick from what like the kind of top of the L way down to the bottom of it and not 
slam balls onto the road or onto the neighbour's <laughs> garden or into the lake. It basically was out the back like that. So, yeah, I loved it. But aye, I was I was properly I was properly into it as a kid. Like I wanted to play for mm. Scotland, and then mm. you know, obviously as you get older. Your priorities change. There's a realization. You still rubbing shoulders with John Barkley. I mean, that's true. Yeah. Still, listen. <laughs> still, I still have the privilege of speaking to and, and interacting with you know these massive, yeah. massive players. But you know, I was, I was definitely, uh, I was pretty, pretty airy fairy back row. I just loved getting my hands on the ball, running around. Sure. Off. It was basically all, all the fun stuff and none of the actual things a back row is supposed to do. Um, it was <laughs> very much my game. But yeah, I, I'd never got to any real standard. But um, sure. I loved. I suppose I was. I was all right for the area and the age group I was in, um, without sure. ever threatening to to go anywhere within yeah. the score itself. I enjoy that the unifying feature between the perspective with nurses is a fear of rucks. <laughs> the, the one other thing we all have in common. Yeah, yeah. Keep me as the, the far best away thing as possible. Was when they started, like when the choke tackle became a thing. Mm. Like, we never really got coached at, at obviously at school level or like age group level or nothing like that, but. When that became a thing, and then when I went down to uni and started playing for like you know Glasgow Uni interfaculty stuff, the vet school actually had a really good team because it was there's no vet school in Northern Ireland, so a lot mm. of the guys would come over, right. big farmers, wow. big hard buggers who'd come over to Glasgow. And the only issue was all of them would bugger off home at the weekend to go and work on the lambing season and stuff. But when I joined uni, we had um, just this big pack, so you play against the other faculties. They actually beat the uni first team, which would have had like Scotland mm. age group players and stuff in it. They beat wow. them one year before before I joined, and then it went downhill. But we, we, we had good fun, and they actually had, they had a serious team when I when I joined. And you know, there's a lot of just big Northern Irish boys who who come over and play. So there, there was always that 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 I guess maintaining of of playing up until I guess the, the journalism career started to take off a bit and then it's just like the weekends are just swallowed up by it is the only real downside of this job is your weekends are swallowed up by by work so you don't have the opportunity Mm. to go and play so I even I kind of made a decision for four or five years ago I played in a a uni game and I was just hanging I was absolutely (laughs) rotten I just had no it's one of these games where like you know, it wasn't that the standard was that low. We went, God, I should be one of the, should be one, not one of the better players, but I should be doing all right here. Sure, I should be yeah. Influencing this game a little bit more, but because I'm so knackered, I've agreed to play a prop <laughs> for the first time in my life, thinking it's only That's a your first game. mistake. It'll, it'll be all right. I was getting concertina left, right, and centre by you know a guy who obviously knew what he was doing, and I was like, oh, what am I doing? Like, I need to either commit to a team and do something else for a living, or Except that that rugby needs to take a back seat, and you know yeah. I'd love to get back to it someday. But until until there are regular, until there's a Glasgow inter district Wednesday night rugby league, <laughs> I'm what, have to what, out what I will say is that you're definitely doing very well on the commentary stakes when you've just thought of a really creative way to describe yourself getting hammered in a tackle. <laughs> so fair yeah. play to you. Mine, my spine still recovering. This was um, it's, it's what's called Dick Day actually because the the Edinburgh. Edinburgh Vet School is called the Royal Dick School of Veterinary Medicine. Oh no! For, genuinely, it has been for. I mean, these 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 unis are some of these unis are older than like America, and the American students yeah. that came over were like, "Oh my god, this is like this faculty was founded in 1704." <laughs> yeah, there were, there were loads of American mates we used to try and get up to play rugby, and someone mm. with, with varying degrees of success. But yeah, they, they called it Dick Day, which is basically it was effectively like a varsity game. The Edinburgh and Glasgow Vet Schools would play each other once a year. And it alternates which city you play in. And mm. 
it was so much fun, so competitive. Mm. Like the boys took it really seriously. You you would get piped out of the changing rooms because there's always it's quite Vesco's quite posh. There's always somebody knows how to play the pipes. Went to private school, pipes you out. So both teams would get piped out of the changing rooms, and you'd be in like I mean I remember the last year I played I think was at the Jack Kane Centre in Edinburgh. The Jack Kane Centre is in one of the more deprived parts of Edinburgh, and here's all these boys getting bagpiped out of the changing rooms to a crowd of approximately 14 going like come on boys <laughs> like, like, you know, we might as well be walking out of Loftus Versfeld for a Lions test like it was just, it was just crazy um, more people had to watch it than this year total frenzy and then you realise two minutes in you're like nah I've, I've blown it already I'm so knackered I, should, <laughs> I got so excited for this game I'm like oh where's the second win but yes I guess cre- creative language does help <laughs> No, so you mentioned obviously watching a lot of rugby from the past. Hmm. Uh, today we're gonna. The idea is we've been going for every game of the World Cup. We want to pick up on the first game between uh, Scotland's World Cup, uh, the fourth game overall between Scotland and France from the first ever Rugby World Cup. Now, Jamie, as you mentioned, I think whereas me and Will, when we were growing up, the era we were watching was the 70s, because that was when Wales were winning oh, yeah, things. For sure. You know, you're watching JPR and you're watching Gareth Edwards and so on. I think for yourself, it's probably sort of this era, isn't it? It's this, uh, largely this team that goes on to win the Grand Slam a few years later. This kind of like late 80s, early 90s Scottish team that I suppose carries on for a lot of the 90s. Yeah, I, I would say so. I mean, that was where probably most of the most of the try highlights would have come from. I mean, mm. the seventies as well, to to a lesser extent, and um, because Scotland had a had a tremendous forward pack in the seventies. That mm. you know, the late great Sandy Carmichael, who very sadly passed away recently. Ian Mighty Mouse McLaughlin, Gordon mm. Brown, who again is, is no longer with us, but was a a great lion and a, a very much loved character in Scottish rugby. But yeah, certainly when I think back to those um, those sad, friendless, uh, lonely days in the, in the spare living room watching <laughs> watching all these VHS tapes. Yeah, I mean, like that that Welsh backline. In fact, I'll give you one nugget of peak, mm, peak Chelsea noise. I once, there was a poetry competition at school. I didn't go to a fancy school, but they had a poetry competition in English. I loved to write. I was like, I felt punch on. And I wrote a poem, and I'd actually forgotten this until now, about the backline of the Wales 90s. <laughs> Edwards, Barry John, Bennett, Gerald Davis, John Dawes, uh, JJ Williams, JPR, all these guys. And it, it won the competition. No! And the school, now bear in mind, my school, my school was tiny. My school had mm. um, 450, 500 kids, which yeah. for high school is, is obviously on a much smaller end of the scale. And they were like, oh, it was a Waterstones thing, or like an Oscars before Waterstones became Waterstones. And they were like, oh, the book shop or the book company wants to have an assembly to celebrate the winner. And my English teacher knew how mortified I would be and was like, no, absolutely not. No, you can't. Just give him his £20 book voucher and just like leave him alone. Because I, I mean, I'd, I'd actually forgotten that until now. I've still got the laminated certificate somewhere. I might not oh, even nice. spend book token, I don't know. But yeah, it was that, that, that is probably about as nauseous as it gets, I think. Oh, I don't know. When I was about I think nine, I was in year two, I won a school-wide competition entitled How to Baff a Dinosaur. Uh, I wrote a full like the idea was every kid had to come up with how would you bat a dinosaur like one kid there were I think they picked three winners from the full school and one of them built a model like an operatable model most kids just like wrote you know something on a piece of paper of like I've got a big sponge um but I wrote like a, a 40 page at least book with illustrations and fig number one refer back to this page like an index and 
I wish I could now add that I mentioned JJ Williams was a great option for, <laughs> to help outrun a Velociraptor. He would know how to bath a dinosaur. JJ would. I feel like. Oh I feel yeah, like, absolutely. And, I mean. In terms of, uh, to quickly segue onto the, the Scottish team, I think that you mentioned Roy Laidlaw earlier. I'm sure he would be excellent at bathing a dinosaur. What a great segue that was. I should do a I reckon first. Mate, yeah. I reckon so. He was a Wiley, a Wiley customer, was, uh, with Roy Laidlaw. I think he was, so so he was, was Douglas Wiley. <laughs> oh, not Yeah. We'll see, we'll see him shortly, will we? Yeah. So, yeah, should we run over the teams from the two games? Should we start with the Scottish team? So, I mean, there's a lot of very familiar, very well-known names, I think, in the Scottish team. Yeah. Uh, You've got, obviously, Gavin Hastings at fullback. Mm. Uh, You've got, as we mentioned, Roy Laidlaw and John Rutherford, who were, for a very long time, Scotland's halfback partner. I think they were legally the only two people allowed to wear nine and ten in Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) They were incredible. I mean, my old man, I mean, my dad's say old, he's not old, he's like 54. But obviously he played yeah, he played a good level with that, um, to be fair. I mean, so he says, obviously no actual physical evidence of this, but he would have played for like Edinburgh and Scotland schools when he was younger in Edinburgh. Right. And in those days, obviously, the same for like, I don't know if you boys' parents have played, but if you were like a half-decent club player, you just got the chance to play against internationals because it was all amateur. So my dad was oh, yeah. played against like Rutherford a couple of times when right. his, wow. his team, Portobello, got a few promotions. And then all of a sudden mm. it's like, Shit, we're playing Selkirk, or we've got you know Ian Paxton, who we'll, we'll talk about later on. He played mm, it. Of he tells a story about playing against him in a sevens tournament and getting steamrolled. Like the, the boy, I think someone grubbed it through, and Paxton's coming after him. He just has to bend down, pick the ball up, and I was like, Dad, you should have kicked that right off the pitch. <laughs> He's bent down, picked up, and got you know what was by those standards uh, or the standards of the day, I should say, a, a massive number eight. We just went, oh, here's a here's a teenage fly half, and um, who weighs about sixty kicks, so commit. Bang, thank you. <laughs> um, but yeah, in those days you just got to play against team players mm. like that. But Laidlaw and Rutherford, I mean, what a halfback pair! What a halfback pair! I mean, they could do pretty much everything. You know, Rutherford famously was a school teacher. I believe used to practice is is punting at half time. Sorry, half time uh, lunch breaks on, um, <laughs> wow. on school duty. Yeah, out in the playing fields, he would practice with the ball and just go left foot, right foot, left foot, right foot. I think they because they played so many times and they knew each other so well. They were able to, and this has come from like reading interviews and stuff they've done in the past, they were able to to sort of cater to each other's weaknesses. So mm. I can't watch one. I think Rutherford struggled to pass off one hand. Um, right. So they would always sort of play a certain way to try and wow. just cover cover those weaknesses up a wee bit. But um, yeah, they were they were two of the, the best players Stones ever had, full stop, never mind two of the best nine tens. And Roy Laidlaw is, of course, the uncle of, of course. Greg. And there is something of like, I can't work out how far the apple fell from the tree. Oh, like, I think I, it I'm fell pretty quite sure. close, then rolled I'm, quite a long way. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that the Laidlaws are just, and you know, the game changes, etc. But mm. even with that in mind, they're as close to being the exact same player as they probably can <laughs> be, you know? And you've got, to be fair, there's quite a good, So I think every single game that we've done so far in this 1987 tournament, there's been at least one father of a now international player. Because oh, really? oh, yeah. we've got, we had like, Julian Dimitris' dad, Tom Taylor's dad. Mm. We have like, mm. like Michael Liner, obviously, you know, yeah, his yeah. son's going pretty well. We've got Gavin Hastings, of course, Adam yep. now plays for Scotland. Keith Robertson is Mark Robertson's dad, mm-hmm. uh, right. which I had to check during the game. You're obviously Scotland Sevens legend. Yeah. So th- there's, there's plenty of them about. And Le- Roy Laidlaw being Greg uncle is like that's a that's a tenuous link at this point well you um, know you know his son clark is um 
Is he on seven set coach as well? Is he? Is he? Yeah, that's that's Clark Laidlaw. That's who, that's his son. He's wow. got he's got three I think he's got three sons, Roy Laidlaw. Right. Um, there's there's definitely a Chris Laidlaw who Roy Laidlaw named after uh, an all black scrum half who he'd watched playing at, at Jedburgh on, on a tour like mm. No way. I'm sure that's the case, yeah. I'm that's incredible. I'm sure family if that's a load of bullshit, but I'm sure that's, I'm sure that's true because I interviewed Roy Laidlaw a few years ago. I'm oh, sure, wow. I'm sure he mentioned that. <laughs> that when you were but, yeah. eight coming off Did the mini's pitch. <laughs> Did, <laughs> you <mean that? laughs> Did you mention that to him? Yeah, uh, quite possibly. It may have been a journalist from the start. But uh, no, but obviously Mark <laughs> Clark's son coaches the, mm. the All Black Sevens. Right. Um, and has obviously had, had a tremendous coaching career. He was mm. with the uh, Hurricanes. Pretty sure he was the assistant coach when he won the title in right. 16. He was the London Irish as well when Tom Coventry and Grant Dury and all those boys came over to to coach and yeah he's been the, he's obviously replaced Gordon or Sir Gordon Hitchens I should say which is a, a fairly mm. large set of shoes to yeah. which to step so yeah the, I don't think the apple's fallen far from the tree for any of them I mean uh, the incredible stat about Jedburgh I remember reading once is it's got a population of just under 4,000 I think mm. and it's produced five international scrum halves mm-hmm. which right, is yeah. <laughs> which is maybe the best hit rate of any town in the world like there's probably you somewhere would, in West Wales. The, the but, quality of those players as well. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Armstrong, yeah. Laidlaw, Laidlaw would be three of them. I'm, I'm trying to think of the other two. But Laidlaw and Laidlaw, I'd imagine. <laughs> yeah. Roy, Roy Laidlaw, Greg Laidlaw, and I think Gary Armstrong's a, a Jedburgh boy as well, mm. um, which is, I mean, that is a frightening um, array of talent from a very small place. And it's the same if you yeah. look at, at Hoyk in the Scottish borders. Mm. Um, it's, it's exactly the same. It's not a big place at all. They are rugby daft down there, and if you look at the the long, long line of top, top class international players, you know as, as recently as Darcy Graham and obviously mm. Stuart Hall, Rory okay. Sutherland, Hoyt Boy as well. But you can go back to like pretty sure guys like Hugh McLeod, who played for Scotland, I think in the fifties and sixties, who was a who was a mm. very highly rated prop. I think Jim Rennick was from Hoyt. There's there's a long, long list of world class players that have come out of a yeah. tiny, tiny place, and it's yeah. the same actually if you look at the women's game as well. Lisa Thompson's from Hoyk. Nice. Uh, Rolly, I think, is from Hoyk. Lana Skeldon is from Hoyk. So it's not just that, in fact, I think, yeah, Lisa Thompson and Darcy Graham played mini rugby together. Yeah. She always gets trotted out in you know, like interviews, and it's a fairly standard statistic for um, cheeky commentators like me when you're looking for, for someone to say during a break and play about Lisa Thompson. But yeah, like the, that, that town has produced such a rich scene of rugby talent, and, mm. it, and it continues to do so, even though probably... Like if we look at a game like this, the 87 World Cup, or even before that, even probably more recently than that, you tended to see a big post on the team from, from Edinburgh, like you know Gavin Hastings, Scott Hastings, guys like that who'd come from or had the opportunity to go to, to good schools where rugby mm. was, was rugby and cricket were the sports and had progressed that way. And then the other parts of the team would have been borders, generally speaking, um, mm. with the odds. I guess not import, but someone like a Sean Lanine who who, who was New Zealand sure. originally, or Damien Cronin or Chris Gray who who had English heritage as well. So mm. it's interesting, even though the balance of not power, but probably Scottish rugby draws less of its top talent from the borders now than it, than it ever has done. But it's mm. still producing those top class players, even though the game has changed, the professional yeah. opportunities are maybe elsewhere now. Yeah, absolutely. Should we look at the French team quickly? Let's do it. Let's do it. I mean, I think the stand-up name, Serge Blanc got fullback with Philippe yeah. Salah. 
Yeah. Center. So I wrote down my team sheet and I started at prop and then worked my way down. And to start off, you see Jean Condom in the second row and I wrote yeah. next, next to Always, it. Every I time. then saw I then saw Eric Champ in the back yeah. row, which is spelt as Champ. And yeah. I drew a little crown above his head uh, oh. on my team sheet just because, you know, <laughs> he is the champ. Uh, and then what I saw you, Philip Sellers' name and I was just like, oh, OK, so this is serious, is it? Yeah. Philip Sellers playing. OK, it's like it's the World Cup. But it is when you start reading through the team sheet and you go, Gene Condom, Eric Champ, you think they're made up, aren't they? They're, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're made up by a six-year-old, at most a 13-year-old. Yeah, um, yeah. And then, yeah, as you say, the big name is Sturge Blanco at fullback. Yeah. And it's interesting because so far, when we've looked at these games, we've not yet seen a good fullback. <laughs> or, or there's been at least an exceptionally crap fallback in every game we've done. Mm. Whereas now you've got Serge Blanco and Gavin Hastings against each other. Well, you think the paradox is going to finish here? Surely so, you can't put two good fallbacks against each we've other. We've got this. We've got this interesting thing going on where, for some reason, there's 30 players playing in this game. When really it feels like 14 for either side are getting in the way of what would be a great <laughs> one-on-one between Serge Blanco and Gavin Hastings. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and they both have quite telling influences on the game, actually. Um, mm. But yeah, like Blanco again. Blanco was uh, uh, definitely appeared a lot in those those VHS videos, didn't mm, he? Yeah, of course. And and will will forever be talked about as one of the greatest players yeah. ever from any country from any era. He was just, I think he just epitomised everything that that we as fans and commentators and and probably players as well love about French rugby. Yeah, um, in terms of he was just so brilliant, so spontaneously brilliant. Yeah, so dazzling. Had a clangor in him. Now, and again, when you look at some of the stuff that he he did do, but overwhelmingly, just a, a majestic rugby player. And so you just you watch him play, and you just go, oh my god! Just the the way he runs, the way he moves, so graceful, so balanced. You just go, Jesus, that is. That's the kind of player that everybody loves to watch. Um, yeah. I'm sure back in the day, you know, in the, in the 80s especially, he would have been an absolute megastar. But mm. yeah, what well, I mean, guys like that, Lajiske as well, I think they used to call him the Bayon Express or something like that, um, or the Beeritz Express, can't remember where he's from, but somewhere in the Basque country. Silla, it just, yeah. that that team, that back line, and then little yeah. Berbizia as well, running the show at nine. And Berbizia, mm-hmm. Laidlaw, that's a hell of a puzzle as well. Yeah, right? yeah. Both games. I guess Leila was probably coming to the well, in the final sort of years of his international career because Gary Armstrong would have been coming through not far behind. But yeah, those those two guys at the peaks of their powers went up against yeah. each other with a, a proper scrap at nine. My yeah. favourite thing about every French backline, though, is you always look through it and you're seeing all these names that you've seen highlights of yeah. and you've, you've adored and you've seen clips of whenever you're looking at these teams, except for the fly half who you've never heard of. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. Every, was, like, historic French team, you've never heard of the fly half. He's it's, playing it's, there. Also, it's interesting what you're just saying about highlight real players, because mm. I've, you know, I've not seen Serge Blanco play a full 80-minute consecutive mm. game of rugby before. I've seen so many mm. highlights packages. Yeah. And it makes you realise the incredible blend between how what an incredible talent, like, athletic man he is, but how insanely unfit he is at the same time. Oh, like, the you, amount you of time he yeah. goes down, and, like, you could tell he wanted a fag break. And, and he... he <laughs> He would then just get up, recharge his batteries, and just sprint ninety meters well, and step everyone with like, dazzling yeah. footwork. I don't know if anyone's seen Serge Blanco now, where yeah. he has about Big boy. yeah, Big he boy. looks like he ate Serge Blanco <laughs> from five years yeah. ago, who ate Serge Blanco from nineteen eighty seven. Sure, like, he's, yeah, he's enormous now, yeah. and he again looks dangerously unfit. Yeah, and suddenly watching him at moments in this game, you can you can really see it. And I mean, there's one we'll get onto towards the end of the game that I found very, very funny. 
you want, do you want to go to the kickoff of the game? Because yeah, I mean, there's one note before kickoff though. Yeah, which is the anthems. I oh, mean, of course, Scotland the brave. Yeah, one thing is that the French comms kick in and start talking over the French anthem, yeah. um, which, which none of the French choice. players are singing. Um, I don't know if you'd ever do that, Jamie. Is that I'd imagine that's oh, advice against. Not. No, I mean, I think one of the you you will have have realised in the brief time we've been chatting that I mm. I do like I do like talking I do like a wee blather, <laughs> and one of my biggest to use the term that professional rugby people use now work ons rather than things that you made an arse of is is probably to talk a bit less it's something I've been trying quite hard mm. to do because you have to be comfortable with silence and you also have to remember it's a great quote I th- I don't know who originated it. I've heard Nick Mullins who is definitely my my commentary hero. Mm-hmm. Um, say before if what you're about to say isn't better or doesn't add any more than say 40, 50, 60,000 people going mm-hmm. tonto then just don't say it just wait 10 seconds say it later on say it then say it once things yeah. have calmed down and it's just learning to have that little that that appreciation especially now because I guess I mean I, I did my first I guess big boy commentary for BT in, in 2019 so mm-hmm. we're talking two years and probably easily half the games that I've done have been to empty stadiums. Yeah. So you don't have the crowd noise. So it's just actually, when I did Scotland Tonga at the start of the autumn, that even though it wasn't a full Murrayfield, I think there were about 35,000 there, just having that noise again and remembering mm. this is what it feels like, this is what it's, you know, this is, a, this is a bigger crowd than you're used to. It's not, you know, it's not a premiership game where there might be 10, 15,000, there might be even less than that, depending on the, the fixture and the teams. Just learning to let the crowd sort of percolate yeah. through your, your commentary, and especially after the anthems, particularly when you've got a really rousing anthem like the Marseillaise, where mm-hmm. you just you just shut up, just let them, and, and, and after yeah. after the haka, and you get that sort of, that roar of, oh, just that, that anticipation after they've sort of gone, and the haka's done, just just shut up for a second, to let the crowd kind of carry it, and then come in and say whatever corny line or talking, you know, the camera by that point normally pans to the referee, and you've got to go, oh, here's, you such and such, he's a referee in his 10th test or whatever. But no, I would, I would certainly never talk over an anthem. I think it's arguably disrespectful as well if you're, yeah. if you're blethering on. Sure. Um, and then obviously now we've obviously got all the, there's a lot of, I guess, housekeeping things to, and I don't mean that in a, in a sort of denigratory way to, to very important messages, which yeah. seem very obvious, but shouldn't really have to be said in this day and age, but alas do around rugby against racism, Around sometimes there's if someone's passed away there'll be a minute silence or there'll be a moment of reflection over you know pandemic or whatever so there's a lot to kind of to to negotiate your way through before the game starts and uh, yeah you kind of you gotta have that in mind that I think you, but you certainly don't want to be rabbiting on over the top of you know the first few bars of of a national anthem um no matter which team but particularly from a from a purely I guess pageantry point of view you certainly don't want yeah. to be talking over the Marseillaise. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, they then move on beyond that to, as you say, it's Scotland the Brave rather than Flower Scotland. Flower Scotland yeah, it's three years before Scotland adopted Flower yeah. Scotland. Wow, so it was very unexpected. It a, yeah, but, it was a team, but amusing regardless. Anthem. Yeah, it caught me off guard completely. Yeah, kind of, I love it. Second, this isn't, Scotland this isn't the Brave nice. is a banger. I will, oh, I will yeah, put yeah. that out there right now. You know, and I'm, I'm sure that our Scott in the room agrees, but. But not content with the commentators just talking over the anthem. Scotland do a team talk through the anthem. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if that was the process of the time or what, but yeah, it was quite quite amusing. I don't I don't know if it had any extra weight to it because you're hearing the anthem in the background and going, mm, yeah. right, I'm really gonna 
go out and make that first hit count or whatever, or you know, trample over the top of the first Frenchman I see. I'm not sure <laughs> if I come across any of these sort of 1987 legends, I'll maybe get the chance to ask them. But yeah, yeah, no, that that struck me as well. It's kind of like they're, they're actually having a proper serious sort of rousing chat mm, in, yeah. their, in, their, in their circle as well, not lining up in the circle whilst that yeah. being played. Yeah, which I actually quite like. I mean, I don't, I don't know if that was commonplace at the time, because all the yeah. teams I've watched, you don't really watch the pre-game stuff, you just watch like the highlights no. or the yeah. game stuff. I don't know at what point, or if it was just so that World Cup, they did that, but I mean, it was it was interesting. Um, another another tangent alert. Boys, you're going to have a job editing this down, I'm so sorry. <laughs> but I remember interviewing, I'd not long started at the BBC, and I did a, a phone mm. interview with Colin Deans ahead of the 2015 mm. World Cup, because he was the, right. the captain in 87, and he's got some great stories from that tournament because it was the first time it ever happened nobody really knew what it was about the significance yeah. of it what the crack was what did we do how do we prepare Colin Deans was a uh, sort of window salesman for a company down the road I think he was playing for fame played for Northampton Saints back in the day another Borders boy I want to say he was from Hoyt but I could be I could be talking rubbish there he was from one of the one of the famous Borders towns he was an amazing player. He was way mm. it's, it's a common theme this quote folks say this this phrase all the time. He was way ahead of his time as a hooker. He, he had the lot in, in the way that, you know, modern day someone like a Dane Coles would have maybe not redefined yeah. the role, but was but had had a lot that most hookers didn't have of his generation. And he was saying like, you know, they, they played New Zealand, who eventually knocked them out of the World Cup, I think, in the quarters. And they were being looked after by the, the Steinlager rep, who were the right. The sponsors or the official beer of the tournament, and obviously in those days, that was very, that was a huge part of rugby in a way that it, it still is now, but not in the, not nowhere near to the same extent because of professionalism and nutrition yeah. and all the rest of it. And he was like, yeah, the Steinlager rep was, ah, the Steinlager rep was looking after us really well, and he said basically New Zealand are obviously the Steinlager team for the World Cup because they're, they're the home country, they're mm. the favourites, and you know it's, it's a New Zealand beer as far as I know. But if you knock them out, do you want to be the Steinlager team? And he was like. Oh, <laughs> I think we'll I think we'll manage that. Yeah, that'll be good. Um, and yeah, I think they wound up with a lot of free cases of Steinlager, um, nice. which got that's so good. Well, the way, yeah, it was, it was class. Yeah. But I mean, tell stories about like he'd be on the road selling windows, and he'd be staying mm. in like 1987 equivalent of a, a Holiday Inn or a Premier Inn somewhere off a motorway in the West Midlands on route to somewhere. And he'd be out in the field out the back doing shuttle runs, and folk would be standing outside going, "What is that guy up to? What is he doing?" <laughs> What, what are you training for, son? Like, oh, I'm, I'm training for the World Cup. I was like, the World Cup? Does rugby have one of those? What do you mean the World Cup? I was like, yeah, we're going to New Zealand in two months' time. Like, I needed all this solo work ahead of it. There was no, like, there was no high-altitude trips to you <laughs> yeah. know, the French Alps or oh, you know, trial chambers or yeah. nothing, nothing like that. And there wasn't even gyms a lot of the time. So, yeah, I remember asking him that. I said, oh, you wouldn't have had any high-altitude stuff. And he was like, oh, no, I did. I did. I ran up the, the Vertish Hill in Hoik or something like that. <laughs> It was brilliant. Um, oh, but just, like, the game was moved on so much. And I think mm, that's yeah. probably something more without labouring the point because it was still a wonderful game. But yeah. the, the sport has, has changed, not quite beyond recognition, but it, it feels like you're watching a, a different sport at it times does. you yeah. watch some of these older games. Like I when mean, sorry, you I, know when someone catches the ball, for example, you know it feels like you're watching a different <laughs> sport. Sorry, Robbie, you... No, you just, I, just on the similar to the Colin Deans thing, when I was in Cardiff a couple of weeks ago for the Washington mm. game, I was told a story by someone who I think their uncle had they passed out for something they you know whatever and they'd needed an operation. 
mm. and they woke up to JPR Williams being the person operating on them. Wow. And like he thought he was dead. You know, like he thought yeah, he, he was yeah. cold, yeah, like he was woken up in heaven. It's and a, this Williams. is minimum a hallucination. <laughs> exactly. You know, like you that you can imagine if you're a Welsh rugby fan, JPR Williams is the person that meets you at the pearly gates. Like sure. he is the person waiting there. That's um, incredible. Yes, yeah, so they woke up to JPR and apparently, um, I don't know if I should say this for legal reasons, apparently JPR did a horrible job on the operation. He had to go back and see someone else afterwards. Um, oh dear. But sideburns though. You gotta think of the sideburns. Exactly. Maybe that was it. Maybe he tried to cut sideburns into his face Mm. (laughs) trying to get him back. I feel like that's a look that should be, you know, we're obviously we're 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 reminiscing here, we're we're looking back Mm. nostalgically at um at sort of past greats and games of the of the past. I don't know why I said past twice, that doesn't make sense, but we're looking we're looking back at great games and uh, great lids as well. And JPR's was uh, as well as Mm. being one of the best players of all time. That those sideburns. I mean, that, that, oh. that that's a look that I hope, much like certain trends around clothing and things are, are mm. sort of cyclical and revived. I really hope the mutton chops come back one of these oh, days. Imagine the only one I've, one I've seen that was it's Paul Griffin. Remember him? At least oh yeah, yeah, with a big side. Yeah. Like, I think the mutton chops, like Hugh Jackman, Wolverine esque kind of look. Yeah. Maxi Medar. He did it. Maxi Medar, like... great show. Yeah. And Maxi Madar's form was directly relatable yes, to of the course. size of the sideburns. <laughs> like the yes. bigger his sideburns at the time, the better he was playing. It was yeah. a trend for his entire career. So moving on to the, the, the start of this match. Yeah. So Jamie, a minute ago, you were saying that, you know, they were there talking in the in the huddle about uh, how good their first tackle is going to be, how good the first carry is going to be. But it turns out that's not what they were discussing. They were actually discussing how well they can run into touch. Because <laughs> yeah. France take yeah, the first kickoff that, and Ian Paxton catches it and just kind of goes I could I could try and run it in but I could oh no I've just run into touch never mind <laughs> by the time you know by the time a Frenchman's considering putting pressure on him he's already he's already over the touchline he's had enough of this World Cup already Scotland have this real thing throughout the game of putting if the ball isn't in the touchline of putting it into touch yes quite a few times there's loose balls like there's one point but- where a French player is going for the ball uh, and Ian Milne, the tired prop, yeah. instead of going to dive on the ball, he does like a flying side slide Proper tackle. slide tackle. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember seeing Boots that actually. Yeah. It's really, really impressive stuff. And like, you know, the amount of times that the two Scottish wingers would just find themselves running. T- there was a few times actually where just both teams refused to pick the ball up and they'd either yeah. be using any of their levers, whether it was their hands or their legs, to just try and bat the ball about aimlessly. And you know what? It's a new sport that I'm here for. <laughs> yeah, that just brings me back, like memories of uh, like mini rugby training and such, where you would always there'd be a loose ball and somebody would come through with a, a big boot and just wallop it as one of your teammates who you're who you're relying on to play with at the weekend uh, tries to fall on it or pick it up, and the coach is like, "Whoa, whoa, what are you doing, boys? Like, you're on the side. Why are you trying? You're going to break his wrist. Don't be kicking that. Get down on that ball." And you're like, "Oh, but it's more fun to just." Lace a loose ball downfield and instigate a mad stampede of children towards the, <laughs> towards the touchline, uh, the try line. Um, but yeah, no, that that Paxton restart claim that, that was the first thing, was literally the first thing that happened in the game. But that, that struck me quite a bit as well. Is he caught it? And I think he sort of thought. I mean, I don't know. Like obviously nowadays, if you if you're an eight catching that, you probably have a bit more space. You probably have mm. a bit more time, sure. yeah. and you would just you would truck it, or you would you'd have somebody in field who is positioned deeper to run on steam onto it. I mean, it would yeah. be the, the nine catching it, who's then got the eight steaming from his own try line to try and carry and make a bit of space for an exit. But he just caught it, I think, and then saw like eight Frenchmen steaming towards him. I thought, I'm not really getting out of this very much. <laughs> it's kind of like a, a bit of a shoulder bump, and then it's just sort of steps in and touches. 
The, the, well, it's the, a lot easier to steal a line out in those days, I guess. Than, than mm. yeah. Well, yeah, Scotland proved that with um, with <clears throat> Finlay Calder, who nicks oh, the line out, sprints twenty meters, and then does a perfect chip into the French twenty-two. Yeah. And it's just like again, like <sighs> forward kicking has come back into fashion, you know, and it probably yeah. will continue to rise in the next few years. But it, certainly in the eighties, you could forgive a forward for not having that skill, you know. Mm. And and Calder just as straight from the second passage of play showed like we're not here to mess about, you know. And like he he he, I mean he he had a very good start to the game as as we'll come on yeah. to. Yeah, he instantly puts himself into the. We're not quite a fifteen yet of players who look like they could cope with maybe the championship level from the sure. But he instantly puts himself in there. Like in the first yeah. five minutes, he established yeah. himself as like, oh no, this is why this guy is remembers being particularly special. Like he's yeah. just, he I mean, fin- Finley Calder was, you know, Lions captain, I think, in 89 in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think I, the one thing that's always struck me watching footage back of Finley Calder is I think he's just had grey hair since he was like 19. He's just like, if you look at him now, like I've never met him um, or interviewed mm-hmm. him, had, had that pleasure, but he just, he's still just the same kind of hairdo as he had when he was playing and he just you, you see sometimes you go back and look at like old movie stars and you go my word Sean Connery was 30 in that photo you're like how is is that what a 30 year old man looked like in the you know the 50s or the 60s or whatever yeah. but the college just had that distinctive kind of grey thick thatch of hair but he was an incredible rugby player and I mm. think when I when I if, I, if you sort of gave me a, a blank sheet of paper and said you know generalise massively what what is a Scottish rugby player What's what's in mm. his or her makeup what does he or she look like? How do they how do they behave? What are their characteristics? Most of them would be embodied by Finley Calder. You know, he's not he's not the biggest, he's not the fastest, he's not blessed with you know freakish genetic or not freakish genetics, he's not blessed with certain genetics where he's you know he's six five and 110 kilos without you know doing a great deal of S and C work as as was the time. But the the desire, the sort of the dynamism, just the kind of furious energy. It's sort of Hamish Watson-esque in the way that he mm. goes about his business um, to liken it to, to modern-day Scott. And the way that, I mean, throughout this game, even even when we get towards the end and Scotland are pushing for, for a try to try and win the game, Finlay Calder is at the heart of everything. He would have been supremely fit um, mm. to be able to, to last the pace of the game back then. His his skills, his, his ball skills, but also just his uncompromising grit to make tackles, to disrupt, to be a nuisance. He was probably the perfect seven for mm. for, for that era, for, for many years, yeah. I would argue. I mean, mm. if, you, if you put him in, if you obviously gave him the the tools in terms of the off-field stuff, the S&C, the nutrition, and the, and the time yeah. to train without having a full job, yeah. um, he's the sort of player you could see playing modern-day rugby um, with the benefit yeah. of, all, of all that professional training. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. He was, if, if you think of the, the archetypal Scottish player, Finley Calder is going to be pretty mm. much by on, I would have thought. And between Absolutely. that first line-out steal and the kick, there's a scrum he steals with his hand and he gets away with it yeah. very early on. Proper shell buggery. Perfect. Yeah, and... and- his his other involvement, of course, setting up the try, which we'll, we'll mm. very shortly come on yeah. to. I just between those few things, I was just like, he's already okay. a man of the match contention. Yeah, yep. I was thinking the exact same when I, I watched yeah. the game back. Yeah, um, just the, the proper proper scavenger of an open side. Um, they yeah, do pretty much anything you asked of them, and and the try as well is again it's another. As, as a commentator, Jamie, you can talk yeah. us through this try. <laughs> I mean, I, I suspect the great Bill McLaren would have been commentating on this, so I'm not going to commentate on it because that would be sacrilegious and highly Fair self-indulgent. Enough. Fair but, enough. Although what I will say is I hugely enjoy the fact that this has been put on YouTube with the French commentary of the Times. 
which, I mean, French comms is, is brilliant at the best of time just because of the cadence and the excitement and the way that they, they enunciate and the way that they, pardon me, express themselves. And in fact... Every time someone kicks, he goes, ooh! Yeah, the, uh, yeah. Oh, actual, yeah. Ooh, la, la. <laughs> but the best, the best example of French commentary, I think, that, that I've heard, well, there's, there's a couple, but rugby-wise, you boys have probably seen it or done a, done a show on it, I'm not sure, but the, the 99 World Cup between France and New Zealand, mm. that's on YouTube, the highlights with, with French commentary. Yes. And it is awesome. It yes. is so, so good because it's just perfect for the excitement that they, they unfold in shock and the, the upset that's, that's clearly in the post, this beautiful French game. And the, the commentary is is outstanding, and particularly whenever Jonah Lomu gets the ball, and I mean he runs over like Benazi, a, a bunch of French forwards to score. Philippe Bernard Sal wants absolutely nothing to do with him at all. <laughs> on you go, just waving him through turns that on you go, big man. I oh no, I've missed him. Sorry, lads. And the French commentary coached as well. That was kind of his <laughs> French team's tactics. <laughs> the, the French commentary just sort of goes, oh la la, Jonah Lomu, oh la la. <laughs> <laughs> Because I'm just like, oh, bloody hell, look at this. You already but, yeah, sound like Eric Bile, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, that's probably a slightly offensive to any French listeners. Apologies. But um, yeah. the, the um, yeah, the, the, the Scotland try in this game, it's it's, it's, it's just such a, a well-taken try. And again, it's called mm-hmm. at the heartbeat of it. With, yeah. With kind of the, the bungled liner that goes over the top, who's first to it, Finley Calder, breaks the you know, slightly fractured defensive Outstrips line. the French backs. Like, yeah, yeah. steams past some backs who I suspect again are thinking, yeah, nah. <laughs> runs, runs, a, runs a clever line as well. He sort of mm. draws in three mm. or four players, arcs his way into the 22 and then Derek White steaming up on the shoulder who tragically pulls his hamstring when he scores the try. Does he? Like, I, don't know if you, I, I missed that. This, but yeah. So if you, if you watch him actually going over the line, mm. I think the way he slides, like his left hamstring just goes. Um, wow. I, mean, I think I think they end up having to replace him. Um, right. So he he may have played on a cat can't recall, but he that, if you watch it, if you go that, skip along to the try and you'll see he's sort of down um yeah, he's struggling. He stays down for eight he stays down for I timed it one minute and eighteen seconds. Because I yeah. thought he was just knackered from running twenty meters. <laughs> <laughs> he was and the only Scotsman in frame. Of, like Yeah, I thought that was just a sign of like second rows at the time being you know not professionals not being as fit yeah that but does make him an automatic dick falls, of the day like, contender because he does that that kind of old school slide on the side yeah. um, mm. rather than kind of like the, the full frontal dive he's obviously kind of swung his left leg around and probably oh, uh, tweaked a wee tweaked a wee or quite a large hamstring I would have thought yeah but <laughs> yeah the, the stuff from Calder and the build-up's awesome because it's obviously a plan yeah. move the Deans are thrown mm. long over the top to try and hit Calder or good throw by Deans as well yeah, it is. And but you see sort of the the physio or, or the team doctor, I'm not sure who it is, fr- sort of frantically massaging the um the pasty white thighs of uh, of Derek White after he's just running this brilliant try. But yeah, he was he was all right to continue, but he um mm. it looked like he'd, right. he'd done himself a real mischief. It's a great support line as well. Like it it's is, yeah. Than any winger or nine is running in optimistic. It's, optimistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's the sort of line you see from a nine now, or from like Chris Ashton. Yeah. who sees a line break and just takes the fastest route from yeah, between yeah. two points because he's gone. Yeah. yeah, I don't need to run out into the midfield to then follow Calder. I'm just going to go straight from the line out. Yeah. Towards yeah. the try line, and I'm going to be on his shoulder and pop in you go. But there he are... was another terrific player, and he's a very yeah. rangy uh, kind of big striding. Forward, I think he played in the back row quite a bit for Scotland right. at that yeah. time. Was a was a, a Five Nations champion in '99, mm. um, and I think he actually did injure himself. In a, sorry, 1990, 
had to come off in that game against England. But yeah, no, it was, it was such a well-taken try. Yeah, there, there aren't many times that you've compare former Scotland second row Derek White and Antoine Dupont. But this is it. <laughs> this is this is the one. This is. I, I'm sure one. they'd both take that. Both <laughs> in terms of. I think Derek White's probably got a better kicking game. If I'm being honest, he's got <laughs> more, maybe maybe more threat around the base. I'm not sure Dupont's got that level of sure. pace. Yet. Yeah, yeah. So the, a, a few more kind of kind of highlights from the, the bit after this to, to run through some of them. There's, yeah. uh, I mean, Blanco and Hastings both start missing a couple of kicks. I did then generate a, a missed kicks chart but we'll come on to that later <laughs> because both teams miss a lot of a lot of kicks at goal Rutherford uh, goes off injured it. after yeah. trying to yeah. Yeah. knock on that, that yeah, was a huge blow yeah. yeah. it's a spectacular because... injury though that yeah. he I mean, gets, sort of tries to hurdle card yeah he's he trying started... to hurdle into a tackle and yeah. he gets himself sort of taken in the air yeah. and then he, falls out injured into the tournament because I remember I mean, this is this is how incredibly sort of encyclopedic uh, Jim Telford is. I, I interviewed him right. a few years ago, and it's one of the coolest experiences I've had in this line of work. Actually, I went down to his house in Galashiels and wow. Borders, and um, sat with him for a few hours talking about just everything. Really, I think that I was there for about three hours. The transcript would have run to probably about ten, fifteen thousand words. You're like, oh my wow. god, I could, I could use pretty much any and all of this. But he talks about having to, you know, I think. I think the theme of it was around not focusing too much too soon on World Cups for coaches. Right. That was that was that was the thread of conversation we were we were going down in regards to building depth and planning. So it was like because so much can happen between now and, mm. and you know twenty nineteen as it would have been then, and you know you, you, and he used Rutherford being injured in the you know the first ten minutes of the first game right. of the first yeah. World Cup. And I think he had been carrying a knock, but then he, right. he I think if you look at him, he's he's got strapping on I think that left knee, so he's already sort of carrying an injury right. and then, yeah it is you're right it's a spectacular pardon me spectacular way to um, to end mm. your, your World Cup because he I think that yeah. was him when that was, I think that was pretty oh, much man. his Scotland career as well I don't think yeah. he played oh. after that wow and Craig Chalmers and, and latterly Gregor Townsend would have um, yeah. come in and filled those spots but yeah he, he sort of it's, a, it's another sort of long line out over the top and the ball's bobbling around he tries to catch it as he catches it the French defence has come up to try and hit him or win the ball. And uh, yeah, as you say, sort of hurdles over the top of one French guy who's like a torpedo, like just diving mm. headlong into yeah. his uh, his knees, full somersault onto the back. And uh, yeah, that was yeah. that was curtains. That, um, that, this was his last cap for Scotland. This was his I, last I think hole. so, yeah. Ch- yeah. Check that. Just, I, I think, just checked. I just yeah, checked. It was, that was it. Wow. This, was, this was how his career ended, which is... Wow. I mean, it's one of those injuries that you initially sort of find funny, then he lands yeah. awkwardly and you go, oh no, that's awful. Yeah, oh, yeah, no, you get a bit of context actually. on yeah. that being the end of his career. I also, I've written down here, Blanco gets decked by a Scotsman's arse because <laughs> clearly one of the, I think one of the Scottish wingers jumped in the air to charge down a kick and mm. took him out. It's one of those things that you occasionally see red cards given for these days. Mm. But, you know, clearly that they'd really set out to just hit Blanco as hard as they could whenever they could, like got the yeah. chance to get within like a five metre radius of him. And it was a rare opportunity. So fair play to them taking their, taking their chance. I, so, I think that would have been a prevailing tactic at the time for a lot of, mm. a lot of teams. I mean, I remember hearing, it was Jason Leonard talk about England playing against France in the early 90s and mm. uh, the Blanco caught the ball from a, an up and under and they were like, right, we're, we're just going to, whenever we can, just shoot the living daylights out of Serge Blanco. Yeah. So the entire pack just ran over the top of Serge Blanco. I think Carling ripped the ball off him and they scored. And then Brian Moore famously stuck two fingers up to the entire stand that was part of France <laughs> running, running back for the kickoff. 
um, and they were always they were always so that that was always the plan was to to rough up Blanco because as good as he was, he could right. probably be a little bit flaky mm, yeah. um, under pressure. He obviously was not known in the way that, that JPR Williams and the likes sure. were, and Gavin Hastings as well as, as solid under the high ball and you know defensively yeah. very proficient and and physically imposing fullback. So I wouldn't be surprised if that was a tactic of Scotland's yeah. at that time as well, without, it, without knowing anything about it. Yeah, a few cheap shots flying from both sides. There's one mm. like insane tip-tackle on Colin Deans that happens. Yes. Yes. There's a point where the yes. camera just cuts to two people pretending to punch each other. Like, oh, yeah. There's a few of, really... yeah. One of the French players punch, I think it's Ian Paxton's arm. Like, they're both swinging for each other and they just connect their, sort of, their wrists to each other. And yeah. they don't actually manage to punch each other. Yellow card. It's like a really shit version of like the end of one of the first Rocky movies where they both punch each other all over, except nobody connects. Yeah, exactly. And my other point, and I just keep thinking about on Serge Blanco, is the sheer artistry with which he builds his tea. The, oh, yes. You know, because everyone else is sort of either just like pasting one, one just ground. in the ground, yeah, yeah. One yeah. or a couple Hastings of players sometimes have a, got well, Wiley to go and build his tea for him. Yes, how does that? Like you know, like the king won't dirty himself. By yeah, the yeah. Have Hastings, you can pretty much tell any player to do whatever you want. Yeah. <laughs> doing I, like I think that's funny because I remember you know mucking around in the in the park and stuff, my old man, and, and you boys are probably the same mm. until maybe like. I don't know, 05, 06, that kind of era, or those kind of years, kicking tees weren't much of a thing. Like, mm. it used to be the bucket of sand, and then at Murrayfield, they had the, the sort of remote control truck that would come yeah. on and deliver the tee, because he used to place kick to start the game rather than a drop kick. And I think the in those days especially, you would just you would build a tee in the ground. Mm. And I remember my old man, you know, this is how you need to do it, son, you do this and that. He always told me to, like, Sort of almost have like north, south, east, west, like the four points of a of a compass, right. and you would kind of like put a big sort of heel into sort of north, south, east, west. So you've got four kind of divots that are then right. created this little mound in the middle, and you would mm-hmm. kind of mess around, dig your thumbs into the mound to make a little indent in it, stick the ball in it, so it was just slightly raised from the ground, and you make sure you had your standing. I mean, it must have taken ages for some of these mm, guys. Yeah, mm-hmm. and also if you're a groundsman, you'd be utterly spewing if it was. Yeah, a yeah. it's like. I've spent months getting this pitch ready for the World Cup and you buggers are coming on and absolutely putting, every time there's a penalty, just churning it up with your eight-inch studs or whatever they would have worn. And back I like, some players just get a bunch of sand, as you say, like, make a little hole in it, knock it off there. But Serge Blanco, like, wants to build, like, the bloody Henson Eiffel Super Tower, Team. Yeah. yeah, exactly, yeah. He's building this incredible structure that he'll properly mm. get it off. And there's a point in which he goes back, like, rejects a bit of sand from the bucket and reaches in for some more because he wants a different bit. It's like he's, you know, like the pick-a-brick website at a Lego store or whatever. <laughs> you know, like, he's he's desperately trying to build the exact tee he wants before every kick at goal. And I respect the artistry, but also what a pain in the ass. So, yeah. My favourite moment of, ex- of of this in mm. this game, there's a point where Gavin Hastings, as you say, really delicately builds a kicking tee. And the pure artistry that's gone into that, fair enough, puts the ball down it, takes a couple of steps backwards, and then Wiley comes in from the left-hand side like a free-kick routine and just pelts the ball into the, the French right-hand <laughs> corner. And so I have no idea if that was planned. I can only assume it was like a free-kick routine of, oh, they sure. assume that Hastings is going to kick it to the left, so we'll kick it to the right instead with the guy no one's looking yeah. at. But regardless, it kind of looks like somebody, you know, when you, you're coaching kids rugby and somebody's put the ball on the team, someone <laughs> yes. else goes, no, I want to kick it. It looks yeah. like that. 
I mean, yeah, that, that was a common stuff. tactic of, of the time, I think, when right. when players would, because it was all done via, or most of the time, you obviously could drop kick it, but most of the time mm. it was done with a place kick it for yeah. restarts and, and kickoffs. Quite often you would see, you know, the forwards split or the forwards lining up on one side and the kicker shaping to kick that way and then changing his or her run-up to then boot to the other side to just to try and spring a bit of a surprise. Sure. And you, yeah. would, you would now and again, in fact, probably quite often, now I think about it, you would, you would see if you've got two kickers or two two proficient punters mm. like Hastings and, and Wiley, you would mm. see them just confused, like a sort of, is it going to be Giggs or Beckham? Is this going to be right foot or left yeah. foot sort of thing? Just to try and bring that element of surprise. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's a few sort of moments like that. Like Gavin Hastings kicks down the line off a tee from a penalty, mm. which is just one, it just feels weird, you know, yeah. being used to today's rugby. The other thing that I just, on a similar thing, the ball presentation is hilariously bad in this game because unlike the other three games, players are actually completing tackles today. And so whenever anyone goes to present the ball, they just drop it wherever they are. Yeah. And so no one rucks over. No one Even Hastings does that it's a couple of times. He does it like, it's times. the one reliable yeah. player. There's a point where somebody falls over and goes for a squeeze ball. And like it's, it would have been easier <laughs> to just place the ball, you know? Yeah. I don't think anybody realises they're allowed to actually control it with the hands as long as they're not holding onto it. Exactly. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. The, the ball placement is is quite shocking. And, and like quite absolutely anything goes at any ruck. It's not like they're going to oh, yeah, be less yeah. for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're just getting away with almost literally everything. As yeah. France almost do at one point, there's a really lovely move they run. So um, Hastings misses a kick goal from a long way out mm-hmm. and France run it back and they do the most glorious move, kind of like that typical images of French rugby as we've talked about mm. from the DVDs and so on, of them linking up and passing between yeah. each other and so Le on. Le flair. Like, yeah, really, really doing some really lovely stuff. And then they pass the winger who randomly hoofs it. <laughs> no. Straight into centre field as well. No, sorry, I've got sorry, I've got the wrong way around. There's two times it happens. Once the winger just randomly hoofs it, and then it yeah. happens again where they run it out from their own 22. And this one is from the kick. And the number eight has just the fullback to beat, and he's got the winger outside him. Right. And he could easily draw and give the pass to the winger. Instead, he randomly hoofs it into the midfield where there's no players chasing. There's there's a point where one of the wingers, I I I think it's Estevé on the left mm. wing, does that and he kicks it centre field and, and has ignored Babesier on his inside. And then later on they make another break where it's Babesier has Estevé on his outside and does the same thing back to him. It's like no, if you're not passing to me, I ain't passing to you either, pal. <laughs> neither neither of us are scoring today. That seemed to be something that happened a lot, not like inter or intra team rivalry about who gets to try and who doesn't it, but hmm. like I, I'm sure watching some of these old games back, like the kind of run up the touch and the, the sort of infield Gary Owen was a very difficult yeah. thing to yeah. do back in the day. Just like I'm not got an awful lot of options here. I've made the break, but instead of just keeping the ball recycling out, maybe because the rocks were more of a lottery or because it was just hmm. yeah. a tactic or something that was a trend in the game at that time. I'm just going to punt this as high and as hard as I can, 15 yards in Nothing field. better to do. And hopefully, yeah, hopefully it'll spark enough sheer chaos that um, <laughs> if the opposition fullback isn't there, hasn't already been committed or does catch it, he's going to get an absolute kick in and we might get a try out of it. And there's, you know, you can get away with it. You can forgive it when it's a halfback or a winger who's just randomly mm. booting it because they're afraid of contact. But once the number eight... Yeah, kicking because they're afraid. If, Everyone know, as, just wants to kick. Yeah, Laurie Rodriguez, the French number eight, does. Yes, but, like at least once. It's it's sort of great, and I mean, like straight from that break, 
France get a scrum on the 22. And they run this glorious set move where everyone's coming in and running these angles and doing all these lovely, lovely passes. Literally zero Scottish players are drawn in by it. Because they do it so far behind what <laughs> Oh, yeah, they do like the a triple line. scissors, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> and they, they flick it into the winger, who eventually comes near close to a Scot and knocks it on. Yeah. And it kind of sums, I think, France in this game up beautifully. That they look great, but nothing is happening. Certainly for most of the first half. I only have two notes left of the first half. Mm. One of them says Blanco steps Hastings and he dies because Hastings just inexplicably falls over and not quite sure what happens there. The other one says Le Flair, Le Scottish Implosion, Le Blanco bonking Robertson on the le head with Le Ball. So you can try and make sense of that if you want. But the last thing I think happens in the, the, the first half is just France fully pressing the flare switch and, you know, whether it goes well is irrelevant. Yeah, like that... The thing that struck me about the game, especially the first half, having not gone back to watch loads of um, rugby matches from from this kind of era Mm. or even from like 20 years ago, obviously it's very, very different, but the the number of stoppages in the game, Mm. we we, we talk about the game having too many stoppages now and interminable scrum resets and TMO interventions and replay after replay after replay where no one's really sure what's going on and what's being looked at in, in the stadium. The game back then was so bitty and disrupted mm. because there were it, it was so chaotic at times where you know you'd have you'd have rucks that were that were just a bit mental you would have players as you say just hoofing the ball off the park obviously you could pass back into your 22 then mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you could kick out on the full out with your 22 but you could certainly pass back into the 22 that was a much more recent um, yeah. Yeah. ball change so pass back into the 22 then punt out on the full there was a lot of that there were a lot of mistakes, a lot of just just a lot of stoppages and scrums, and the the, the saving grace is that the scrums just happened. The referees yes. didn't didn't need to do anything. They just they would sort of grab each other and then just decide right, we're going down, and yeah. they would just sort of fold into this this position where there's no crouched you know crouched bench yeah. set, crouched touch pause. It doesn't matter if people are in the wrong positions. Doesn't matter. No, we're all, we're all we're all here, lads. Let's go. Let's stop messing around. There's and they just all fold moment. in together and start, you know, knocking hell out of each other. I remember Eddie Jones speaking about this when I think he was on the Five Live podcast with Chris Jones and these guys, mm. and he was saying, "Oh well, everyone talks about the Barbarians New Zealand's game from '73. I think with Gareth Edwards' famous try, greatest game ever, greatest try ever." He's like, "Do you know how many kicks there were in that game? <laughs> it was something like 127 or something ridiculous like that." Yeah. You can you can totally see that the flow of the game is so different now. Yeah. The, the actual mm. spectacle. I think when. When when rugby's played, you know, beautifully, expansively, with offloads and running lines and, and you know wonderful patterns, it's it's a beautiful game, arguably the most beautiful game that, that exists, regardless of the era, whether it's the seventies, the eighties, mm. now or or even before that. But it can be a hard watch at times, some of these older games, when you're going, mm. yeah, <laughs> we've got um, we've got like one phase and it's been punted out, one phase and it's dropped it, one Someone phase just catch it, please. Yeah, and it's not it's not even that these guys weren't skillful, they were extremely skillful and mm. you know, elite athletes for the time that they played in. They were they were some of the best players of ever grace rugby fields um, that we're talking about here. But the game was just so different. You know, it's the old there's this sort of pointless debate that people ask you about and oh, who would win a game that the, the 1990 Scottish team or 2020 Scottish team or whatever, and you know, if you if you gave them the same the same sort of training mm. in terms of like S and C and things, and they were they were sure. they were able to have the muscle and the the physical attributes that today's players have, who would win? And 
I mean, it's it's an utterly pointless debate, but the game was so so different then yeah. that it's it's hard to see. The fundamental skill remains the same, but there's such there's such complexity now to the game in terms of mm. the analysis and everything that's come yeah. with professionalism that it it it's quite jarring at times watching these games back. I find and you go, wow, this was so. You could argue whether the merits of it, whether it's better or not, but I think what there is is a is a purity to it that maybe doesn't always exist now because there isn't as much cynicism in the game back then sure. because yeah. it was it was played for enjoyment. And I'm not saying that, that money has, has brought cynicism or brought any kind of like sordid elements to, to the sport mm. that we love and talk about, but it just it feels it feels more almost more natural. It feels more relatable. There are mm. more mistakes. There are more stoppages. There are more missed tackles. There is less organisation and structure to the game. And I quite like that. It, it can be a tough watch at times because you're like, well, yeah, right, what, this, is, this is a bit of a drag if not, if there's not a great deal happening. But there's, there's a purity to it that I think, and a romance to it, that is really nice to look back on and say, well, I'm not, I'm not sure I necessarily want it in today's game. There are certainly yeah. things from, from, from this era and previous eras that rugby may have lost that it could do with rediscovering. But the, the flow of the game is just so different. And yeah. I, find, I find it quite yeah. jarring actually going back and, and watching this. Because like you say, most of the stuff you would watch, unless you were doing something like we're doing today, would be highlights, would be, mm. be truncated clips of a particular triangle. Wow, that's brilliant. Wasn't the game amazing back then? You yeah. watch a full game. Yeah, it was amazing. It was brilliant for the time. But <laughs> would it, if you watch that game today, you'd be like, well, there's a lot of mistakes, there's a lot of errors, there's a lot yeah, of this, lot yeah. of there's not a lot of, let's say, depth to the game because sure. the, the tactics and the strategy and the analysis were nowhere near as advanced. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're 10 years away from the first defence coach being hired at this point, you know, in yeah. seven. Yeah. Like, the, it just wasn't a factor. You and know? you sometimes and do get players who just choose not to tackle. Yeah. yeah. Well, one thing you'll notice, by the way, actually, when, mm. when Rutherford went off, Alan Tate uh, came mm. on. I'm pretty sure, I, I know Tate well. First cap? Yeah, first cap. I spoke to him about this a year or two ago and we were looking at, you know, the World Cup throwbacks and stuff for Rugby Pass and I did a piece for him because he, he was involved in the scouting for Scottish Rugby. We did a piece for um, for the 15, which is now also Rugby Pass Plus, last week on Ewan Ashman because he was involved in scouting and recruiting him. Um, well, not recruiting, but getting him involved in the, the Scotland Days Great Pathway when he was based down in the Greater Manchester. And Tate, I think... He hadn't had the same rugby league background then. Obviously, he went on to become a dual code international, mm. won loads in rugby league, was a, was a winning lion, a, a Five Nations champion in Union, from tremendous career. But some of the hits he puts in are some of the biggest hits you'll see in this mm. game. We are technique spot on. He's almost like, he looks like a modern day player playing in a, a, yeah. an older game almost, if that mm. makes sense. I think when you watch that, you see that the dynamism that he brings in defence fearlessness you know he, he smashes he smashes one of the forwards quite early on after coming on and that actually that stood out to me as like whoa okay here's a this is a young guy who, who at that time looks like a player of the future looks like somebody that's going to grow and yeah. develop as the game evolves yeah. and obviously he, he did and he was a he was a, a world-class player for Scotland and just immense in in both codes yeah, absolutely. I had, we had the same thing talking about Grant Fox of watching him. He looks like a pretty modern fly half to say he's, you know, what, 20 years earlier, 20 plus years earlier than, you know, the kind of modern equivalent. And I think that thing you're saying about the innocence is really interesting because I think it absolutely comes out in this game. 
Uh, but like mm. the England Australia game we watched last that we did last mm. the previous episode on is so boring for the same kind of reasons, and it kind of becomes more of a lottery in where's the game going to land? Is it going to land as a really entertaining thing in its very open spirit? And there's something that kind of evens the thing up when, you know, taking high balls was far more difficult in those days when you're not training and practicing for it constantly. That you have two of the best fullbacks of all time in Gavin Hastings Mm. and Serge Blanco. And both of them do drop high balls under minimal pressure. But then we also do see there's a bomb that's gotten put up in the second half on the the French line, uh, the Blanco takes really, really yeah. well. Like yeah. both of them are capable, both of them are entirely talented players. The whole time that but ball's there's... in the air, you're thinking, oh, this is going to be dropped, it's going to be a Scottish yeah. try. Yeah. And you're right, Blanco takes it brilliantly. And you yeah. get why like, you'll watch a lot of, again, Wales from this era back, and part of it is just the Welsh team not being very good. But, you know, you hear Jiffy on commentary all the time talking about Wales need to run it. But he did a lot of just hanging speculative kicks in the opposition yeah. 22. Speculative's kind as well. <laughs> yes. You know. Yeah. Because that was the kind of thing that worked. Because, you know, again, teams weren't coached and you didn't have, even if you can take it under the high ball technically, you know, you're, you're good at catching. There's so much in terms of just the way you come onto the ball and advance onto the ball mm. and having blockers yeah. in place and so on that's changed and been added just mm. by levels of analysis and coaching, which I think more than the standard of players, like the standard of coaching is the big difference. In between, you know, World Cup and, of course. and now. Of course. Should we look at the second half? Yes, let's do it. Yeah. So I think things start to even up a bit. So Scotland weirdly start to really pull away. They get to being 16-6 up. Mm. Yeah. Um, and they feel they feel good for it. I think Scotland, even though they, they have quite a few spells much of pressure. Much better team, yeah. Yeah, they, they feel, again, as you say, yeah, much the better team. And then... Philippe Seller happens. Yeah. Yeah. So France make a bit of a break through Chave, their centre, who actually played quite well, actually. looked like quite a balanced runner. Who then weirdly tries this strange over-the-shoulder pass, which clearly nobody's called for. Yes. It it somehow works because somebody picks it up and France go, why don't we just pass it all the way down the line where we've got Blanco maybe even unmarked. The the pass is incredible. I don't quite know how it happens. No, he sort of spins it. He goes a pure it's as though he's going to offload it towards a touchline, but it spins mm. around his entire body and ends up back in field. And then yeah, Rodriguez, the number eight, regathers it on the floor because it doesn't go to anyone because no one is expecting that to ever happen because no one's ever done it before or since. Yeah, yeah. And you know, by the time Seller pops up on that support line where he's about to score, mm. you, it's one of those where you kind of question: When did the try line get so close? Yes. <laughs> It was almost mesmerising the way that, that try unfolded. But that, I think, is the kind of thing you, you just associate with the French teams of that time, especially. If we yeah. Are. It's just, it's simple. I mean, obviously, the, the pass you're talking about from Charvet is not simple, but the, the, they win the line out and they sort of, they, by hook or by crook, they commit, pass, commit, pass, mm. just shovel the ball really nicely mm. along the line. Yeah. And then there's a lovely thing, a step inside from Lajiske, who just sort of, because he steps, he's gone inside to the, it's, it's the sort of thing you see not to get a little bit carried away, but the sort of thing you see like Fijian boys doing on the seven and Fijian girls yeah. doing on the seven circuit a lot where they'll just know there's a supporting player looping right yeah. outside. So they'll step yeah. inside. They'll often go through the tackle with one hand and then cat flap out the back door yeah. and, um, and ping it on and the, the support runner's just there and, and ghosts in at the corner. But um, it was really well worked because hmm. I think it was, um, I don't know if it was Estev or Lajiske, which, which one was on which one? I think it was Lajiske who, who just sort of stepped inside. He got tackled but he's checked the defence who are steaming across the cover by stepping inside. Yeah. Tackle, and then Sellers looped around. 
and because he's travelling at pace, he just tanks over in the corner. And it's just like, it's every French try you've seen from yes. that sort of era, isn't it? Just like handling forwards and backs, clever, almost instinctive play, no chance. The ball, if you look at the height of the ball, if you sort of drew an imaginary line along the midriffs of the players, the height of the ball doesn't really deviate because it sucks. No, slick, yeah. It just goes bam, 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 pop, 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 pop. And they go away. I say, I say. <laughs> yeah it's really nicely taken it's just really aesthetically pleasing that try yeah exactly, you know yeah. like there's just a little bit of my brain that is very satisfied and pleased and happy watching yeah french teams do that kind of like the ball in front of them and then looping it back and yeah it back. it's what it reminds me of it's like on on rugby away or rugby World Cup 2011 when like yes. you press the the left pass button one too many times oh, and, yeah. and the last guy who you think, oh no! If I didn't press it, I could have gone and ran as him, and, yeah. and he, he automatically ships it on because you pressed it a second yeah. too early. It's, that's that's <laughs> the mode that pass. France are constantly in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. France are constantly in that mode. And there's, there's one way they try that, and then Serge Blanco tries like the little cross chip, yes, and nearly mm. catches no it himself chasing, because he's it's... so much faster than yeah. everybody else yeah. because he absolutely spots there's so much space out wide. Mm. If anyone was chasing and they score easily. But yeah. no one is chasing it. Yeah, but he is that quick that he nearly gets to his own cross kick. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, uh, that kind of begins from this point onwards for the first sort of 45-odd minutes because there's no score, there's no clock or scoreboard. Yeah. Though yeah. at one point, because the French coverage is so much more advanced than the Kiwi coverage, which was up until this point, they put the word Serge Blanco on screen when they're showing a close-up of Serge Blanco. And it felt like the future, man. It felt it like did, the things yeah. you could do with television broadcast coverage. Was cool. Speaking of seriously impressive things from the French, mm. they have a try disallowed because they yes. somehow managed to run well, <laughs> a switch with a forward pass in it, which I didn't yes. know was possible. So my favourite thing about this try, yeah, so it looks really the, easy. The, scrum the, the, corner flag, the corner flag is the best thing about this try. By oh, my, yes, that's it. Shredded by the guy's boots. Oh, wait, wait, which because they have two, the uh, there's two equally two impressive disallowed. disallowed fact, sorry, you're, on, you're on the first yeah. line, it's Berbizi scores, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, the corner flag will get that. Uh, yeah, so I've, I've jumped the gun the, with the corner that's flag. Okay, that's so okay, that's okay. By the sight no, of a, I have a the plastic flag, just just being almost turned into mincemeat by a trailing <laughs> leg. Um, absolutely, quite spectacular. Absolutely. And the, the best thing is, like, the touch judge in those days has to has to take a punt and be like, yeah, yeah try to skate tight, you know, because you've you nothing else. Again, like, he, the technology is not there, so... A, you look back at it and you see, oh, he, he grounds it before his foot goes into touch. It would have been yeah. a try if the TMO was there. Yeah. But, like, I've never seen a two, two-dimensional two object burst before. And somehow that <laughs> happens to the corner flag. It's no, it's spectacular. Like it properly shat. You stop and wonder what is made of. Yeah, I don't know. Is this why yeah. they now made them out of fabric or sort of plasticky stuff? <laughs> Must now? be. Must ring Which alarm bells. Apparently, yeah. When they made out of China, they got shattered by a ring of fabric <laughs> in the corner. It's it's properly spe- like that. Is how you want to see a try finish. You want to see something break on impact. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. You'd give it just for that though, wouldn't you? If you're oh, the yeah. referee, you you'd go, oh give well, because he is in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, but it's like, well, he shattered the touch flag. It's impressive. We'll give him the four points. Yeah, eight out of ten. But yeah, the other try has disallowed, where the nine pops it in field, and mm. then he, you know, somehow the ball goes forward, disallowed. Uh, and the as you, as you were saying J- earlier, Jamie, like the forwards just go for a scrum; they just form into the scrum almost instantly. Yeah. And the winger is jogging back into his own half, and he hasn't noticed the try has been disallowed. <laughs> and he has to turn around and sprint back and get in the defensive line. 
Because the scrum's already started. Yeah. By the time he's, you know, by the time he's got back into half and realized no one's lining up the conversion, everyone's hanging around. I love clips like that where you kind of see, you know, more from back in the day where somebody would like intercept the ball, maybe mm. like 10 yards out from their own line, and not like either forget, not care, or not realize, or just run anyway, even though the other team had an advantage. So they just run for the line, and everyone's like, right, it's, you know. Whistle's blown about five times, and the guy's like, yeah, it's like up the other end celebrating, like, oh, man, try the season, 90-odd yards celebrating, and it's like, <laughs> ah, shit, there's a penalty 90 yards back from the other yeah. <laughs> You always wanted to put the ball down anyway, though. You always yes. wanted to just you die always, down. It's like, it's like VR with football now. It's like, just score the goal, worry about it afterwards, you know, never mind that, because yeah. the play has to come to conclusion before they will adjudicate on it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Should we, should we, let's have a look what we've got. Um, we have the... Let's go the Bezier's try. Yes. Oh, yeah. So uh, it's it's a genuinely cohesive, like, scrum, 8-9, mm. dummy and go from the 9. And it's it's actually quite a good score, you know? Mm. Like, it's a classic scrum halves try, and it brings France back into the game before they go mental and start trying to kick the shit out of a bunch of Scotsmen. <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's, it's really nice. Really lovely little dummy, just... And again, it's one of those things that looks easy, but it's well worked. There's actual dummy runners in place, and mm. there's actual yeah. reasons the tackles are being missed. It's not just, as I said, there's not a defense coach hired for 10 years. <laughs> yeah, sure. I, I enjoyed that one. Like, it was just, it's a sort of try that I guess is probably quite commonplace back then, where it's, it's a wee mm. eight, nine maneuver and it's just bamboozled the defending team quite close to their line. But Berbizier was such a such a predator of a scrum half from what, what I recall watching them on, on highlights. Obviously, I was we're all too young to have seen these guys play yeah. in the flesh. But yeah, it was just, it was, it was quite cleverly worked. Even the way that they, the Scottish scrum came on, but then Rodriguez just has a little peel off to the right. And then because you've got Blanco and uh, and Lajewski sort of steaming on in support, there's so there's so little space for the Scottish defence to actually come up and close their BZ down. This massive gap just opens in front of them. And by the time that's happened, he's got about two yards to run. Um, he's yeah. so long, so he doesn't even have to think about releasing the pass. Probably because everyone's so worried about the guys outside him. Someone's drifted too far or someone's not come off the scrum quick enough. Mm. And uh, he's in. Yeah, really well taken. Uh, and then straight from the kickoff, France start playing again. And the game has swung completely. It's now France absolutely All over completely the, on top. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, Rash. And there's this thing, like, I think between Serge Blanco and Philippe Seller, the two most famous players in this team, sure. uh, they kind of sum up almost the history of French rugby, but certainly this French side, in that Serge Blanco is 95% incredible and brilliant and wonderful, but the other 5% is terrible <laughs> <laughs> and would just make complete howlers uh, out of nowhere. And then Philippe Seller, whenever he can be bothered, he's incredible. But he would then just go to sleep for large passes of the game. And there's one point in which he's kind of, he like, he runs a line when uh, Chavez has the ball and is, you know, looking for someone to pass to. And he runs a line that is very much a don't pass to me, I can't be asked line. <laughs> and there's a few moments like that. But then the ball gets to him not long after the kickoff, after Verdier's try. And he goes, like he steps about 13 people, makes about 20 meters and links up perfectly with uh, Patrick Estevez. And it is glorious when he then absolutely hairs it for the corner, but in particular the corner flag. Yes. Yeah, the, the corner flag is just... I'm still utterly transfixed by that that whole incident. I mean, Salah, of course, with the, the set-up play to just I don't know, simultaneously bamboozle seemingly the entire Scottish team. But then just the way the way the corner flag erupts, mm. like it's almost it's like it's exploded. I don't I don't know how like I've I've got the replay up just now. And like obviously fair play to John Jeffrey as well, I should say, for actually getting back and yes. Uh, yes. and sort of it just it's not even a tackle, it's a push because he knows he's not going to stop him from there. So he just tries to push him with the momentum and and force him into touch and I don't know. It, it looks like, obviously, with my talent and specs on, it does look like mm-hmm. the knee is down on the touchline. Okay. Uh, okay. But, but um, you know, I, there's not many referees and officials from that era would would not give that. I wouldn't have thought. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. They must have been pretty confident that they saw the knee at the deck. But yeah, it, it doesn't even. I, I thought when I watched it the first time that the corner flag kind of gets folded underneath one of the players as they mm. dive over and it's like a boot or a leg like with a stud yeah. just breaks it but it's not he literally just hits the corner flag the actual stick the post yeah. and the flag just blows up <laughs> I don't know why I'm so fascinated by it it probably speaks to my very small no I was too I'm just like no, how is that like the match. What, what, is, what is that thing made of it's like confetti celebrating yeah. the try coming uh-huh. out it's it's glorious and it's it, almost it, like the corner flag is a really crap pinata. And it's yes. just <laughs> but instead of sweets, it's just like someone going, no, 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 no try, no try. <laughs> it bursts open and just little shards of plastic saying Rugby World Cup 1987. Which was what? That was, as we, we talked about having birthday parties with no friends, that was what, <laughs> what mine were like. We had... We woke up 1987 merchandising <laughs> in the party bags, and that was why no one came to my 18th birthday. Um, that's uh, an actual fact, but not the actual reason. Let's move on. So, should, should we move on to one of the most hilarious moments in this World Cup so far, which was the Blanco try? What on earth happened? Because <laughs> literally, what did happen? I don't know. Any ideas, Jamie? Not, not really. Like it's, it's quite hard to analyse just on the basis that it is so mad. I mean, there's just, I don't know. There's just like heavy cotton jerseys and and despairing men sort of flying over the place. Um, Berbizi does himself a mischief in the lead up. Like it's all. It, I, I 
genuinely don't know where to start with that particular try because so, it's, it's so left field. But I think scored. it's just like be, be, it's it's very typical of France. I think, especially back yes. then, where they just be like, "Right, we're just going to play now," and good luck stopping us. And I remember actually, I think it's Gavin Hastings' first cap, maybe a couple of years. No, it's eighth, five, eight, six. Don't remember mid eighties anyway. Mm-hmm. And um, he missed his first kick at goal, or he put, I think it was actually the first kick off he put out on the full. And they were like, oh, he's like, oh, what have I done? What have I done? And as he jogged back to sort of defend the scrum uh, on halfway, Blanco had taken the line out quickly from halfway. And he was like, before I knew it, there were three Frenchmen running at me on my own. And they scored a try the post. <laughs> he yeah. went on, I think, I think he actually kicked eight out of nine or something. Scotland won it with one on penalties, basically. Just like he, he kicked and I think they won it like 18, 17 or something. It was all his kicks. But mm. yeah, it was a d- difficult start. But that, that's what I thought of when I watched this try. So you imagine because... it's a similar situation, isn't it? Where there must be a quick yeah. line out or something. Because it scored pretty much off camera. Yeah, yeah, I mean the, that, the that's the thing as well. Like, on a line they, out or something. I think they do pick it up on replay from memory, but it's so... In fact, I'm trying to have a scroll through it to see if they do pick it up. I, I don't know what they do. But it's do. just like... Blanco just appears in shots, slaloming and weaving through static Scotsman um, in very Blanco style. I mean, he he has has a bit of a, I don't know if he's having a bit of a rant or a moan, but like, he takes his time with the converse as well. He does, doesn't he? Down his haunch, he's just like, just just chilling. I don't know if it's because Berbizi is injured, he's like, well, I'll just wait for him to to Mm. get himself sorted out. But when you're talking about the whole fag break thing, you can kind of see him sort of like coughing and spluttering a bit. And he's just, you know, you could just imagine him sort of, pulling a Gorwaz out of the sock and just sparking up <laughs> in the middle of like a massive World Cup pool match <laughs> in New Zealand. But I think it's because Berbizi is receiving treatment. He's like, well, I'm not starting the game right. again. So my yeah. teammates all right. right. But um, he also quite possibly just thought, I've done all this work now. That's yeah. That's well, that's it. It. I could probably back heal this conversion. Kicking tea, fag. It's not just that he's, he stops and takes his time over the kick. Mm. He puts the ball on the floor. And just leave built his beautiful tea. Yeah, he yeah. takes his steps back. He turns and faces the other way and sits down. Yeah. Like, he sits down for He a couldn't look more minute. disinterested in no. kicking that conversion. If, if, it's almost like, I don't know, it's, it's you know, knowing like going to sleep at night and you're, you're just, you, if you've got a, a anxiety-ridden brain like mine, then you tend mm. to find the worst moments of your life playing a highlight reel just at the moment you're about to fall asleep. You remember you did that, you stupid idiot. Remember you did that? Remember you said that? Remember you, you're like, oh, why am I thinking this now? It's two in the morning and I, I've got to be up early tomorrow. Why now? But it's almost like Blanco's sitting there going, shit, did I leave the back door unlocked? Oh. <laughs> oh, did I switch the microwave off of the wall when I when I left the house for the airport? Oh, um, <laughs> Christ. I bet, like, you know, all these daft things. Like, <laughs> did I lock the back door? Did I... Shit, is the hob still burning? Oh, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> I think that's it's what it seems like to me. Back in France, on the other side of the world. Yeah. All the all these things just running through his head, going, "Oh, bloody hell!" He looks like he's having a, a lovely little epiphany there, just sort of. It's also an inherently uncomfortable position to be in. Yeah. It's like he's been running around for about eighty minutes by this point. It's near the mm. end of the game, and he's just doing like a really deep squat, like a frog position. I don't know if he's just showing off, just like. Lads, look at my quads, you know, look at <laughs> how flexible my glutes are. I don't know what the deal is, but um, he just couldn't look more disinterested in playing that game rugby at that point. He's just kind of just chilling for them. Just going, my favourite part is that he turns and looks away from everyone else involved in the yeah. game. Mm. 
There's no point in a rugby match normally when you're looking away from the other 29 players unless, you know, you're in the process of scoring. But no, he turns back on the Scottish team, doesn't angle himself enough that he can see any of his own players. He's just staring off into space. Like, I think it's almost the exact opposite of what you're saying about the anxiety thing. And, yeah. You know, like, when you have a moment of, like, you've just woken up, you've got a cup of tea, and you're not thinking uh, yet, you know? You're just staring. Just staring that kind of thing. Wall. Exactly. Like, I think he's in a moment of, like, pure peace. You know, he's got, in his mind, he's got a croissant. He's got to reach down and try yeah. and eat at any moment, and he's only going to get his quads. It's like, um, there's that... There's a thing that, you know, again, along with rugby, I do love mm. nature and animals. And I used to watch a lot of like, marine biology stuff when I was younger. And there's a, if you, useful piece of knowledge, lads, if you're ever in this sort of situation, say, say you're cage diving with great whites off, um, off the coast of South Africa. Too, yeah. yeah, all the time, all the time. Uh, yeah, honestly, um, it's, it's a frequent occurrence. But say your cage is, is knackered and one of the big buggers breaks in or something, you know, you're in trouble. If you turn a shark upside down, crucial mm. knowledge this, it enters a, a state called uh, tonic immobility, whereby it's upside mm. down, and it basically just passes out. It just sort of lies there, going, "Oh, okay. bloody hell!" Like its its senses are totally scrambled. It's like you've you've like punched in the head and knocked it unconscious, which we'd argue to be cooler than just turning upside down. But actually, another fun fact that's not related to this podcast at all: there's a tribe, a tribe, uh, um, a pod of killer whales that have become so intelligent and specialised in shark hunting. They don't just kill the shark, they turn it upside down so it basically passes out and then kill it to make it easier and stop themselves getting bitten. But that's what I think Blanco's, he's just like in this tonic immobile state where he's like, oh, I don't know, I should probably be like hunting and killing fish just now or, you know, looking out for baby fat seals, but he's just, just chilling. But then the sheer disdain with which he strikes the conversion as well, he's yeah. almost like, oh, I'm, I'm playing the World Cup here, I need to. And he just sort of turns around and takes a couple of steps up and wallops the ball, just probably poof, wallops it, and then just nonchalantly runs back as though, right, Scotland, that's you dealt with now, out the roads, yeah. glass of red, up the, up, you know, off we go. That's I this like, game done. I like finding out that there are whales out there that are better coached than any team at this World Cup. <laughs> <laughs> Including whales. Um, uh. So, I ruined it. Uh, yeah, but that's it. Like, Blanco has a moment of, you know, like, if someone wakes you up, Right, and you were previously incredibly peaceful, but you become violent all of a sudden. Yes. You know, you wake up angry because you weren't expecting to, or you're in the middle of a dream. You're that kind of wrong stage of your sleep mm. cycle. Aye. Blanco seems to do that. He just comes to absolutely thunder twats the ball, heads between the posts, then yeah, slowly jogs back, re-enters his kind of daze. And, and importantly, this puts France in the lead, twenty yes. points to sixteen, out of nowhere. With yeah, yeah, with what five minutes to go, less than. Yeah. So Scotland only really have one last attacking opportunity, you know, and like Finlay, Finlay Calder goes for the kind of money ball pass, try, yeah. tries to go for a proper like loop over the top of a French player, hopefully will score from that. And Scotland do go through genuinely a decent few phases with the ball. Oh, it's really well worked, actually. Yeah. Like they're, attack- they're looking up and seeing where France mm. can be struck at. Yeah. Rather than just randomly chucking it on the line or throwing it to their big lads. Like, yeah. It's... It's actually quite well constructed. Like it's yeah. the most modern try I think we've seen in the four games so far. And they also spot Dominique Urbani, who's the French Open side, who we've not mentioned yet because mm. I didn't really see him do much in the game. Is jogging, uh, jogging towards where the, the most space is on the field, uh, and that space happens to be occupied by Matt Duncan, the Scottish right winger, mm. who unfortunately hasn't seen much ball in this game. He has one really good break. Boy, what a, what a finish to the game he has! Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. So Another they, corner flag incident as well. But this one, this one, 
not quite so spectacular. I was hoping it was going to be more of more fireworks on the old corner flag, but that one's more robust. But like it is, it's, it's a really well taken try. Like yeah. again, like you say, the identification of space with a little kick over the top, then the then the touchline, then the blind side. Yeah, um, I think it's Duncan actually steaming onto it, who, who mm. sort of gets on the end of the the bobbling ball. But even that's just clever. The timing of the run, excuse me, the timing of the run is is great. The execution of the kick is great. It's the sort of thing. I mean, I can't recall seeing too many sort of delicate box kicks like that when I've been watching yeah. footage of some of these older games. Yeah. The kind of like touch finders, clear your lines. Like some, some scrum halves, like Scottish scrum halves, were very, very adept at doing that um, mm-hmm. for just to put pressure on teams or to to gain a bit of territory. Um, like Brian Redpath more recently was, was very good at that, just like probing yeah. kicks when a defence is scrambling, but you're not quite ready to, to attack them again with, with ball in hand, just chase them back again. And, and probably win a line out deep in their territory, um, but it was just really nicely done. And then again, like we made the point at the start of the the game, Finley Calder. This is this is I think the clock's pretty yeah. much red at this point. This is yeah, it is the, yeah. The, the conversion that, that Hastings has to to win at the death that goes just wide. That's I think if not the last kick of the game. No, it is the last kick of the game. It is yeah yeah. yeah. So that, this is this is it. You know, we're probably played more than eighty minutes. Lord knows what the public playtime is, but it's a lot of running around for. For Finlay yeah. Calder, but he's still at the heart of everything for Scotland. He's still like compare and contrast the French Open side you just mentioned, who's just sort of lolloping along, <laughs> just kind of going, "Oh, there's a player who's going to score a try right in front." Oh well, that, that sacrable. We'll just leave it. But <laughs> Finlay Calder still got that determination, that will, that fitness to be able to chase after a box kick with 80 minutes gone, mm. not a lot of respite, having been involved in some big old collisions with some very large, very angry. Yeah. And um, sometimes quite violent French forwards. He's gone and won the ball. He's thrown that ball inside. It's a little bit ambitious, but it works because there's three or four Scots mm. floating mm. forward. And that's kind of, when I think about like the way Scotland would have played back then, that's probably the kind of image you associate with Scottish rugby. It's like a, a kind of tearaway break, you know, the open mm. side flanker going and winning it, proper tough, nuggety forwards, just rampaging after it in support. Flooding through overwhelming France, and eventually, you know, Duncan exploits the space and, and finishes really nicely in the corner. Yeah, and word for Derek White as well. The final mm. draw and give on the touchline, to yeah, yeah. put him over. He starts and ends the game very well, exactly. Starting and ending the game with a great line and showing a great bit of skill as well, yeah, especially you know, for a second row at the time and someone who you know had done his hamstring early in the game, yeah, like literally over an hour ago, he's done his hamstring and he's still, yeah. Making a I mean, count in the latter stages. I, you know, I played a game of touch with a, a, you know, I've broken my finger. I played on until the end of it. It hurt. I had mm. not torn my hamstring. It makes it almost <laughs> impossible to run. And he makes a break as well about it. Yeah. You know, just after half time. Yeah. He played he has an impressive very game. well. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, so, what, what you didn't have though, you didn't have a physio coming on and frantically rubbing your finger for five to ten minutes <laughs> yeah. as you sat on the turf. If you'd had that, then no problem. You probably scored yeah. a winning try at touch. Yeah, I would, it's it's really it's a shame we didn't have that. We need to, you know, look at our uh, budget and yeah, we need to rethink this this whole uh, thing. Yeah, <laughs> we waste all that money on getting Sam Lana down. He's, we, his so, wages are astronomical, man. Um, <laughs> his, but hey, his results good. Yeah. So the game finishes twenty all. Hastings, as you alluded to, misses the the final kick. Narrowly. He's right out on the touchline. He's very close to getting that and pipping the game for Scotland. But twenty all probably feels like a fair reflection in the end because of France's mm-hmm. comeback. You know they kind of deserve to be in the game. Well, Scotland are unlucky Scotland not to win it. 
are completely on top for about for more of the game. Yeah. But the periods where France are on top, they're so much better that you yeah. kind of feel like a draw is probably a fair result because they're incredible sure. for the, the period yeah. where they, when they're good, they're extremely good. It's very, yeah, you know, the absolutely. old cliches about France all coming to light here. Yeah. So, yeah, I'd say we... so. I mean, we probably sum up the ebbs and flows of the game pretty perfectly. Mm-hmm. That there's There are periods where Scotland are dominant and probably should score more points, but then when France have the momentum... They are so good and so dangerous mm. that you know they have, like I say, a couple of tries disallowed. That you know they, they probably weren't tries in hindsight, but they were they were still big opportunities that, that didn't quite come to pass for them, and they were sort of carving Scotland up almost at will at that point. So yeah, I would I would agree with you. Fairly pointless observation because I've just reiterated everything you've just said, but that is <laughs> the art of commentary, I suppose. So, <laughs> um, a true yes, professional. Uh, a, a draw is probably the fairest one. Yes. Let's not let's not be controversial. Should we look at man of the match and dick of the yes. day then? Yes. Uh, should we start start with man of the match because we've just start with man of the match. we've yeah. spoken positively, you know. So should I should I start with man of the match? Sure. So that. one of them was Calder. You know, as I say, started the game very well, finished the game very well. You know, impressive game from him. But for me, despite the many the, the five missed kicks at goal for Scotland and the four for France, I think it has to be between the two fullbacks for me. I th- that Hastings kicked brilliantly, but I think I have to give it to Blanco just for the mm. sheer entertainment value mm. he provided. Jamie, do you want to do you want to go next? Yeah, I I love the of the sort of pureness of that. If that's even a word, I hope it is. If that, uh, who knows? Um, I love that that notion that um, we're going with the you know the razzle dazzle. We're going with the flair. We're going with the just the the sort of capricious bonkerdom of everything that the Blanco brought to that game from the, uh, the the disinterested sort of pre-conversion squat, the the crazy try he scored, um, the, the the various moments where he looks like he can't really be bothered, and then the moments where he comes to life and just wows everybody. I I love that. I think I, I won't I won't contradict you much on that. I think Cal- Calder would be up there for me for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, and for for very different reasons, and that he was probably probably everything that that Blanco isn't in terms of just consistent, rugged snarl mm-hmm. and yeah. um, competitiveness. You know, you probably couldn't find two more different players on that pitch than Calder <laughs> yeah. and Serge Blanco. And Finley Calder is a highly, highly skilled player, by the way, mm-hmm. as as we saw with his his breaks and his passing, his kicking, and his distribution. But in terms of you know, maintaining that level for eighty minutes and his influence on the game. Calder would certainly be up there for me. I'd have to say Derek White as well mm-hmm. um, would be a shout. And actually, from a from a Scottish point of view, I was really impressed with Alan Tate coming off the bench first yeah. up, playing against a big French team. He put himself about really well. Yeah, um, he didn't get his hands on ball that much, but he made some some really telling tackles and you know strong, powerful interventions. Which, I mean, I, I think Alan Tate will be like fifty five or something now, mid fifties anyway. So. I can't be the master Tom Head, but he'd been about 20, 21 whenever he was yeah. playing that game coming yeah. on. Yeah, for for a, effectively a, a complete rookie international level to come and play that well, I was really impressed with. But um, yeah, I think from from a romantic point of view, you've, you've got, to go, got to go with Serge, haven't you? <laughs> and I mean, look, it's hard to argue with Serge Blanco and Gavin Hastings. I think you've both mm-hmm. kind of covered a lot of it. I think Hastings is really solid, like... Looks yeah, like yeah. you could drop him into a obviously you know a bit of conditioning. You could probably drop him into a professional team now, and he'd do pretty solidly. Like he's got everything rounded yeah. up. 
I also think, you know, you talk about Finley Calder a lot. I think he's fantastic. I have talked slightly less about Derek White, who I think is brilliant throughout. Um, yeah. He has a lot of touches that you don't expect from a second row at the time, as well as being very good at the line-out, which mm. was a proper, a bit of a lottery back then. Uh, so having someone that was as good a line-out forward as he was is important. But I think my man of the match is someone that we haven't talked about much from a rugby standpoint, mm. uh, more from a window salesman standpoint. But Colin Deans, I thought was... It's a good game. Great show. It's a really yeah. good game. And I think I like that shout. both as well as he keeps popping up in the loose everywhere. Um, mm. Again, as you mentioned earlier, Jamie, like plays a bit like a modern hooker, like the sort yeah. of thing oh, yeah. mold of uh, of someone who likes to handle the ball and likes to pass and you know likes to pop yeah. and things as well. First but hooker also, in his World Cup who can throw into a line out. Yeah, yeah. Also, yeah, as I was say, like throws really well. Like yeah. nails a couple of really difficult throws, which again tricky thing to do at this point when there's no lifting and you know it's yeah. a very different skill mm. but also at the scrum there's about three or four scrums where France are shoving Scotland backwards but he just hooks the ball back and so Scotland yep. get away with it 100%. even though they're retreating which is such a difficult you know it's a kind of lost art I think a lot of yeah. people oh, Brian yeah. Moore talk about a lot in commentary and so oh, it's, it's gone it's gone from the game yeah. hooking, hooking yeah. the ball against it hooking the ball full stop because yeah. in those days you know if you watch the scrum things they weren't nearly as crooked and mm. the scrum was not the, it, it wasn't the this kind of unwieldy beast that it is today. They just sort of got on with it, and it wasn't to say there weren't, wasn't to say there wasn't you know a huge amount of tactics went into it and yeah. techniques yeah. and and you know ways to exploit your opponents and and all you know the, the horrible cliche the dark arts of the scrum and oh nobody knows what's going on in there, which is probably born from from that era and in fact previously it's not even you know eighty seven but way before that, but the scrum wasn't this sort of just like I say, unwieldy entity that you know purists of the game love and treasure, but actually maybe new fans go right. This is this is fine when it works. When it doesn't, Jesus, I'm sitting watching this thing fall down and stand up again, reset, fall down, stand up again, reset, and I've lost five minutes of game time to mm. sixteen absolute monsters of men clattering into each other and falling down repeatedly, complaining about it, moving around, getting told off by the referee who's doing his best or her best, but probably isn't quite sure who's doing what, otherwise they'd be given penalties and cards. It's it's difficult. But in those days, Hukin was was su- still such a skill and Colin Deans was one of the best at it. You know, his yeah. the nuts and bolts of his game were outstanding, but he brought so much more than that around the field with yeah. his fitness, his work rate, his skill level, his ability to to, to keep up with play, to play as they say, like an extra back role. He was, he was. I've used this phrase a few times, and in this case, it's definitely not an exaggeration. He was world class, and hmm. he, I think, he played 40, 50 games for Scotland. Would have probably played a hundred uh, had there been yeah. as many Test matches. Absolutely, in those days, uh, captain Scotland, yeah. captain the midweek Lions, would have been a Test Lion. There, there's this famous sort of story. I can't remember what year. It might have been '83, but uh, one of the Ireland coaches were in charge of the Lions and the Irish captain can't remember his name I think it's Fitzgerald I can't remember his name but uh, I want to say Kieran Fitzgerald could, could be wrong could be completely slanderous and you know, could get sued for this but Colin Dean's always maintained I think it was backed up by a lot of players of that generation that Kieran Fitzgerald started a lot of the test matches on that tour because he was the, the Ireland coach's captain and he was obviously I think had the ear of the coaching staff whereas it was I think it was widely um, recognise that Deans was was a superior player. I don't know because I wasn't there, and I I need <laughs> to analyse that. But um, that's that, cool. that's, a, that's something that's come out quite a lot. Um, yeah, in, in, in books around about that time, you know, Deans yeah. and others. So uh, I think he was probably quite unlucky not to play 
quite a lot of test matches for the Lions as well because no, you would Dean's walked so Russ Ford could run. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know he he did a bit of coaching actually? Colin Dean's he did, he did quite a bit of coaching. He, he he wrote about this in one of the there's this sort of Scottish rugby. I think it's called Giants of Scottish Rugby. It's about twenty mm. years old now. Right. The author whose name escapes me. Apologies. Um, goes around and basically does a chapter talking to you know like 40, 50 great players dating all the way back to like Ken Scotland who will be 83, 84 now, who played in the 55 lines and was like a, a sort of transformative role as a fullback because he ran into the line, which nobody did. Right. They toured New Zealand and the Kiwis were like, bloody hell, what's this fullback? He <laughs> catch the ball and hoof it, he runs into the line, he takes goals, he does this, he does that, which like almost redefined the role of the fullback. And Colin Bean just one of the players that's interviewed in that. And mm, he talks probably. about, yeah, he talks about doing a bit of coaching, I think at Northampton, which is where he, right. he still lives down there now. He must be late 60s now, Colin Deans, but he he uh, would have coached, I think, and, and a lot of the time he got a bit fed up with the professional game. And I think he tells a story where he gets a bit, I suppose, indignant that these players are quite ignorant as to who's actually coaching them. So mm. he's coaching, I think, the Saints back at the time. And they're like, oh, did, did, did you play, Colin? Were you, were you a player? Like, did you get into his coaching? He's like, yeah, yeah, I, I played. And the guys go, oh, who did you play for? He's like, oh, I played for Hoy, played for Saints, played for Scotland. He's like, oh, you did play for Scotland did, did you did you get many caps he's like yeah I got 44 and he's like alright okay <laughs> and did you did you win much he's like yeah I won a Grand Slam in 84 and he's like alright okay and uh, you know did you did you ever like do much else he's like yeah I played for the Lions and I captain them we're like alright oh, okay and he's, a bit like, he's, I think he's quite an unassuming bloke Colin Beans but he is a pretty yeah. and he actually did a lot That's of mentoring for, he, he is quite out, or he was certainly I've not spoken to him in a long time now but he, when, when I spoke to him for these pieces he was quite quite opinionated about the the Scottish game and the union and the way mm. Mark Hudson was, was operating and but he was mentoring players from afar. He was mentoring like Kevin Bryce, who was a hooker mm. and then a prop at Glasgow and Edinburgh. Yeah. Um I think he worked with did he work with Cammy Fenton? I'm not sure. He worked with a few yeah. of the kind of hookers right. that were on the fringes yeah. of the Scotland team at that time. I don't know if he ever worked with Ross Ford, um, but he worked with quite a few of those mm. guys. I think they would like he would look at their clips and then come up and throw with them a couple of times a week and stuff in mm. between. In between, I think now being CEO of the window, uh, the window sales right, company, yeah, yeah, worked for incredible, a really nice guy. But I remember distinctly one of the things he said was, "We don't have big props. We don't have big props, so we have to make them." And he was advocating for turning Dave Denton into a prop at the wow. time because he was like, "Look, we don't have." This is before like Sutherland and and Fager, say, Fager, would have been like fucking sixteen or something. There yeah. wasn't. We didn't have the, the depth that Scottish rugby has now, which is why you had like VP Nell coming across yeah. and then becoming like this this phenomenal um, proper Scotland who just never mm. got into, never missed the game for years. And he was like, we don't have a, a great loose head, but we just have to make one because Al Dickinson mm. was just about retiring. Like, okay, we need we need another loose head, so we'll just Dave Denton. He's massive. Put some weight, put a bit more weight on him. Teach him to come and be a prop, like you know. Wow. Okay. So you'd always get a good uh, a good quote um, if you, you had a chat mm. with Paul mm. Deans, but. He still kept up with the game and was very, very insightful. Yeah, Stuart McAnally, of course. Oh, of course, yeah. Right. Fraser Brown, likewise. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, all all Scottish have been have been back rows at one time yeah. or another. And even even mm. Turner, I mean, it's not surprising because the way Turner plays. But yeah. I mean, Ross Ford was a back row too before he right. um, yeah. turned into a, a hooker. I think some of them have have even played a centre wow. in their sort of younger days, like much younger days. But I think that's just the way the game's gone. I mean, Ashman. Yeah. Ashman played, I think, was was initially a back row, and then yeah. I think actually Rob Brierley, who's in charge of the Scottish Exiles program, was like, nah, right, so right. Your, "Your future could be a hooker if you mm. 
because he was always a massive kid and wasn't the tallest. But when you see the size of his quads and stuff when he played the last couple of weeks, he's a big, big boy. And yeah. when I spoke to some of the sale coaches about him last week for, for a piece he put out with Alan Tate, actually, he says that his first day of training, we didn't know anything about him. We just, one of his teammates said, this guy's class, bring him in for a trial. They brought him in. They were like, Jesus, he's like bigger than all the other kids in terms of wow. his, his musculature. Um, and we've never seen him before, never heard wow. of him. Um, so they got him in and, and pretty okay. soon they were like we can't not sign this guy is that good yeah yeah um, wow. but yeah it's interesting to think how how far some of these guys would have gone mm. in the modern game like if yeah. you know, a player with Colin Dean's skill set would, yeah. would prosper um, undoubtedly yeah. like, like like the great Tom Smith as well who's always had his mm. health battle recently of course. Um, yeah. so nice to see him presenting the ball and and Donny Beer was there, was there as well at Murrayfield on the weekend yeah. um, you know guys who are way ahead of their time yeah, yeah. Should we um, should we quickly yeah. wrap up with Dick of the Day? Yes. Um, yeah. So a couple I've written down. One of them is Bebezier himself for once getting trapped in a mall amongst sixteen <laughs> fat forwards and really trying to like wiggle his way out. And it's like he was in a maze. It was great uh, as a spectacle. But I have to give it to Paxton for the fact that the very yeah. first thing that happened in the game was him running into touch. Yeah. Uh, lads. Yeah. The, the the Paxton one's quite funny. I mean that that would have been that that's just so. It just strikes you instantly from the kickoff. Yeah. The first thing that happens is he catches it, sort of assesses his options and goes, safety first, lads, or <laughs> that'll do. I, I, I don't know. I hesitate to take the piss out of these guys because they were wonderful players. Of, of course. I mean, of course. Um, like, yeah, that, that would be up there for me. I mean, I kind of want to give it to the exploding corner flag. I'm, I'm obsessed with this. Yeah, it flag can be. You <laughs> can give it to, to the um, exploding corner flag. If it, if it can be anointed to an, an inanimate object in the corner flag. It can be. It can be. I think um, We make the rules. There's, there, there's a couple of times where like, poor Keith Robertson has a, a tough game. Um, it does, doesn't he? This one, where he, he spills a ball from a kick through where Scotland would be a chance to try. Oh, man. He, he takes a couple of big, big I hits when he a gets bit. a hospital pass. Yeah, and gets, just gets ball and all. I think the French players actually trying to intercept the ball as well inside from Tate. Um, yeah. they the tackle and they both go for it, and he ends up getting clattered. He's yeah. in the one. He he does he does so rapid. I mean, but mm. I'm not sure that anything that would be mm. uh, dick of the day worthy aside from a wee fumble. You, which you can give it to a corner flag if you want to. You can give it to you an all. It's a bit of a cop out, um, but yeah, I'm no. gonna give it to corner flag. Yeah. Just, I'm yeah. too. I'm, too I'm glad you've done that. Entranced by. Um, an exploding piece of plastic uh, to, <laughs> to really have paid much attention to anything else that happened in the sure. game before or since yeah. <laughs> that point. 100%. I was going to give it to the corn flag as well, but then, you know, a couple <laughs> of like, uh, I think Bebezier becomes the first player to ever dive in the Rugby World Cup. Mm. Ah. That, uh, one of the Scottish players barely touches him, he falls to the floor and rolls around until the penalty is given. Yeah. Um, <laughs> which is blatant, but you didn't see it back then. child. So yeah. I respect it, you know, just in creating the modern scrum off. And uh, Ian Milne for his diving slide tackle to kick the ball into touch, I thought was pretty spectacular. Yeah. Um, but I looked through the team sheets one more time before awarding it to the corner flag, and I realised I've got to get the trophy's called Dick of the Day. I've got to give it to Jean Congo. Oh. Of course. <laughs> oh, that's very good and very bad at the same time. Yes. Yeah. It's a disgusting thing to do. Um, okay, so I think that brings us through to the end. Uh, thank yes. you to everyone that's listened. Thank you for joining us. Please join us next time when the game will be Japan against the USA. 
which is another close game. And before we go, a massive thank you to Jamie yes. for joining us. You know, we're no, both, you, as you said yeah. at the start, you know, we're both huge fans of your work. Mm. And you, I, I, I'm pretty sure that you're the only guest that we could ever have ever had that would say the phrase capricious bonkerdom, which I think is the <laughs> best thing that's ever been said on this entire podcast. So fair play to you. No, boys, it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, thank mm. you so much for your kind words for thinking of me um, and for, for inviting me on. It's been great fun. Oh, um, I reckon this might be possibly the longest podcast that anyone's <laughs> ever recorded. I mean, this is like Joe Rogan levels of, um, of length <laughs> because I've just spraffed on all the rubbish in between the actual stuff we want to talk Wouldn't about. change um, it for the world, been, Jamie. It's been a pleasure. If people want to hear more spaffed rubbish, uh, where can they find you on the social medias and so on? Anything you want so to So I am very unimaginatively handled uh, at jlyle93 on Twitter and on Instagram, which Instagram used to be more of a sort of private thing for family and friends and stuff. And I was just thought, oh, I can't be bothered. I'm not going to make another one. I'm just going to open that one up. And there's not there's nothing particularly interesting, insightful or private on there, um, aside from photos <laughs> of me, my partner and my stepson gallivanting around various places which has now become more of a I suppose more of a professional platform where I just shamelessly post about games I'm covering and stuff but yes those are my two thoroughly boring social media accounts which are available for anyone who um, needs a cure for insomnia to come and click on (laughs) if you're up at 2am wondering again you know got all that going through your head like Serge Blanco taking a kick yeah (laughs) yeah okay well thank you very much for that thank you Mr. Uh, Only Friend of Dog as well. And we'll see you next time for Japan against the USA. Thank you very much. Good night. Bye. Cheers, guys. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.